So, Brett, why has there not been an Easter yet? We have Black Christmas, we have Halloween, why no Easter? Is there only one zombie allowed? Uh, if you want to see Easter, you got to watch Critters 2. Oh, Critters 2 is an Easter horror movie? Critters 2 is an Easter horror movie. So if you ever want to see the Easter bunny get eaten by Critters, that's your go-to. I do want to um, see that. And I think... I think actually um, Chuck Russell directed Critters 2, and he is known for probably The Mask, most well-known for The Mask. Nobody stopped him. It's a comedy. It's a good movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Okay. Well, sounds like you have an answer for everything, as you should, since it's our 100th episode. Whoa! Whoa! Let's do this. Pew! This is Necromancer! Necromancer. For the hundredth time, I'm going to tell you that my name is Shira, and I'm a fan of romantic comedies. Yeah, you should know who I am, and you should know what I'm a fan of. But if this is your first time, I'm Brett, and I'm a fan of horror movies. And today we are celebrating our hundredth episode by doing something that we have delayed doing a very, very long time, which is re-recording our first episode, episode zero, which none of y'all had heard because the sound quality was terrible. I'll, I'll paint the picture for everyone because I think now we have a much better setup and we've, we've, you know, slowly kind of gotten our act together a little bit. I mean, there's always room for improvement, right? Uh, I say that about myself, but we we basically, we sat around my coffee table because I didn't have a dining room table yet. And the, these were pre-COVID times when you would meet in person. Uh, and we talked about our two favorite uh, horror and romantic comedy movies to kick things off. And it was a wonderful, lively, fun, bright conversation that none of you will ever get to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe someday, uh, if if I don't know, maybe should we should we episode donate two hundred? Should we episode should we donate episode zero to somebody who's just techie enough to fix all of the sound issues? Yeah. Like y- your problem science. now. <laughs> yeah, right. I'd like to donate that episode <laughs> to science, like. If we could put it in a Nickelodeon time capsule for a scientist in the far off future, like Horizon <laughs> Zero Dawn future, to right. find it, and we could be <laughs> we could be those things that people ignore in a video game. Yeah, I definitely think we have what it takes to be NPCs, uh, yeah. and yeah, uh, things that people ignore in a video game. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 it was essentially your idea to, to do favorites again for our hundredth episode. And I agreed because I do think that the people, the listeners and the non-listeners who should become listeners 
to hear what we thought about these movies and even what our favorites are. I mean, we've talked about our reverse favorites, but in, yeah. in a way, we've never talked about favorites because we just never released that episode. So now you get to get to the base of what Necromancer is is all about. Because also in episode one, I think I explained my thesis for the podcast there uh, more than I did in any other episode. And then I just let it go. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm in, I enjoy that we get this opportunity to go back to our origins, but, uh, with a more comfortable, polished approach. Uh, episode one as any podcast. Well, I don't think we're ashamed of episode oh, God, one. No. That's well, why we're not going to release it. Episode zero. It's just right. Episode zero. Um, it's just technically it's not pleasant to listen to. Uh, and so with a little bit of cleaning up, yeah, we can release it. But like any first episode, it was a little messy. And one of the things that happened was our wires got a little crossed. And I did a remix for both, but you only did the remix for the Oh, one. that was also another thing that happened. So I feel like... And so, yeah, I'm glad that we got to like, oh, no, it's, it's really fun to to dip into the other person's genre. Right. And, you know, you were the person who really brought that to me because, again, when I envisioned this podcast, I thought of it as a kind of cultural exchange, right? Where, right. where you would dip your toe into the romance, I'd dip my toe into the horror, but I never thought that you would want to write a romantic comedy version of a horror movie. I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to want to do that and, and he's going to want to do the horror. And I would say that for the most part, that's true when it comes to the, the types of remixes that both of us enjoy doing. We, we tend to put more of our heart, I think, into the, the genres that we're fans of, but you've also by stepping into that and doing what I totally didn't expect, but I loved writing a rom-com, you also opened up this thing where now I can do the same thing. And I think that there's, you know, whatever smart people like Harold Bloom call it the anxiety of influence, where when you're writing mm -hmm. within a genre that you're a huge fan of, it can be really tough because you're so familiar with it. And then when you step out of that, so when I write a horror, when you write a romance, it suddenly becomes fun again, because it's like, oh, well, there yeah. are no rules. I don't, right. I don't care what happens to, to this story, because this isn't, you know, this is my passion. But, you know, it, I think that it, it brings back what I think makes writing so much easier, which is just playing. And I think that that's yeah. most of the time writer's block is you just get too serious and perfectionist and you you're no longer able to just play with things. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. Uh, doing the horror movies is really fun. Uh, the horror remixes, it's really fun. But doing the rom coms is just like it's it's there's no consequences exactly. you know what i mean like 
Yeah, if I do a if I do a horror movie, like, oh, what if it was almost good, and what if it could be a really good idea? Yeah, like, what like, if I could make I'm that trying, a real uh, idea, like spin yeah. this off into a real feature or something like that? And then I have to come up with like a beginning, middle, end, and then like, well, my character's gonna need a want and desire, but in a rom com, I'm like, hey, you get it? She's the busy working lady. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I felt that way earlier when I was doing my 10 things horror. Uh, and and I was like, man, like, we're, we're getting really close to recording time. I just need to list out what the kills are in this movie to satisfy right. Brett. Like, I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. I was just like, okay, I know that Brett's gonna want to hear the kills. I got to give it to him. So let's just like, let's just write them out really quick. Whereas I think... <laughs> If if I were more invested in horror as a fan, I might take some time to really build on these horror set pieces. But I was like, nah, yeah, let's just, let's yeah. just go through them. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've found that really fun. I've also found really fun just looking back on our podcast since this is episode 100 that both of us have kind of gone off on our own and watched rom-coms and horror movies like... Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember which episode it was that you recommended Bride Wars, but I was astounded. Brett went off on his own and watched Bride Wars for fun, yeah, not for an assignment. <laughs> so I, I wanted like a Anne Hathaway comedy fun movie. You should add The Princess Diaries to that list. Uh, but okay. uh yeah i i was so pleasantly surprised by that or i'm sure for you it was fun to hear from me when i was going through friday the 13th and nightmare on elm street during october because i i've yeah. never you no know, like i said i'm i'm a casual watcher of horror movies so i've never gone through those franchises and watched them and i had no idea about any of the lore or anything but i yeah. i felt and inspired like i, I to rewatched do so. I rewatched uh, Dream Warriors because you went through that series, and oh, Dream, Dream Warriors, Warriors is under. It's been a while. It's been it's a long underrated. Time since I've seen I would that. say that so Dream good. Warriors is underrated. I yeah, I'm I'm all about the. Um, I want to say Tommy Doyle because we were just watching Halloween, um, right? But he, it's a different Tommy for uh, Friday or. No, no, I'm getting I'm getting my franchises confused. No. Um Dream Warriors It's all the big Dream guys. Warriors <laughs> has a uh, Heather Landcamp in it. Uh that's right. why we like it. And Patricia Arquette. Uh but yeah, so getting back to the movies back then in episode 0, each of us I think had our favorites ready to go. You chose Halloween. I chose 10 Things I I Hate About You uh, for record purposes. Why Halloween? Why is that your favorite? Oh, man. It just, like, okay, so it was the eighth grade Halloween dance, right? And so I went to the dance and like, hey, you're a kid, you go to the dance, whatever. But then the fun part for me was, I got to come home and my mom rented us a scary movie. It was me and Randy. Uh, And so she rented us a scary movie. And I was like, I get to 
to have a friend, like one friend over for a sleepover. And we're going to watch this scary movie and it's going to be really scary. So I was like super into it. And then I watched Halloween and it was very scary. (laughs) And uh, Randy kind of chickened out and started playing. We had a pool table down in our basement. So he started playing pool and I was just scary. Right. And I was just transfixed on Halloween. And even like the day or two after my mom was like, hey, I was talking to our neighbor, Phil, about Halloween. And he said it was a uh, very informative uh, when it comes to certain aspects of, the of sexualness. And she's like, is there anything we need to talk about or discuss from that movie? I was like, no, there's not. Any, there's nothing really in that movie. I was like, there's a couple boobs, but that's it. Uh, but then going back on it now, I'm like, oh, yeah, this movie is all just horny teenagers fucking and drinking and smoking and in in death everywhere. But as a kid, I was just so drawn in to the movie that, like, it wasn't about, like, ooh, boobs. It was like, holy shit, this movie is great. Uh, and it forever, it forever left an imprint on my brain. And, uh yeah. That's why Halloween. I think it makes sense. And it's it's a perfect choice for the opener of our podcast and, and as a favorite horror movie. Because watching this movie again after all of the movies that we've watched together just makes me think about how much all horror movies made since Halloween owe Halloween. Yeah, it 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 started so many tropes and it just it continues to inspire people. And yeah, I I like I would say that the first Halloween is taught, as we like to say, it's, you know, the it it is a movie. It's very economic. Oh, yeah. Both movies are extremely economic. There's not a minute wasted. Oh, not at all. In these 90 minute movies. Yes, exactly. My perfect length for a movie. Uh, Brett puts an asterisk on it and says sometimes. Uh, Seven Samurai is the fastest three hour movie you'll ever watch. I don't know. Maybe I'm just still mad at Andre Rublev, and that's why I can't stand long movies. But um, yeah, I, I just think, yeah, the pacing in both of these movies is really great. And you get to things really quickly. No drawn out backstories for anyone. You just get right into the plot. And and there's no no time wasted. And yeah, like I like a good hangout film where it's just like we're going to hang out with these characters for hopefully 90 minutes, uh, <laughs> a little bit more. Um, but I'm just m- more engaged by a movie that moves quickly and because my mind moves quickly. So I, I want a movie yeah. to match that pace. You get, you get 15 minutes to set up your movie. I will give any movie 15 uh, nowadays, maybe 20 if I'm being generous. And if you haven't done it by then, like wh- what are you doing? What's going on? But both of these movies from the gig within within 10 minutes, you get the premise of the movie and the rest of the movie is going, yeah, 
that's it. We're playing with that premise. Yeah, it, it's very simple, uh, but it works so well. And coincidentally, it's funny, both of these movies are about and for teens. I think, yeah, yeah teens are, are the subject and the ideal audience. Um, so yeah, maybe we're just, we're just forever young, uh, teen adults, like a lot of millennials, but I, yeah, I think that it it is a a well-made movie, a really well-made movie. And so is 10 things. Uh, I think both of these movies set off little, you know, I think both of these movies are great for people who are fans of these movies. Like you talk about not just fans of horror and romance, but of these movies specifically. Um, But yeah, it's like they're both movies that launched a thousand tropes. Yeah. Um, Do you want to talk about Halloween now or do you want to go into 10 things and why you pick 10 things? Well, I would personally like to answer that question first before we talk about which movie we want to do first, but just really quickly. Yeah. 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 The reason that I chose 10 things about you is not only because it's one of my favorite romantic comedy. Do I think that, Oh, this is the most best written, skillful, blah, 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 artistic, cinematic romantic comedy ever written. Of course not. Uh, but I do. Why? Of course well, not. No, I, it's a it is a movie. really, it is a really <laughs> great movie. Like it, but I, it's not criterion is not going to release uh, an edition of 10 things I hate about you. That's what I'm saying. Like it's, it's, I feel like Halloween could maybe make it onto Criterion. I don't. I don't think Ten Things could. Yeah, um, but but I mean, like that's how I think that the world sees that movie, not how I necessarily see this movie. And I just think that one of the things that makes Ten Things so great is kind of what you're talking about with Halloween. It's not just about the experience of seeing this movie as an individual, but the shared experience. I stayed and watched the movie. Randy went off because it was too scary. (laughs) For me in 10 Things, it's that I watched this movie with my best friend Jasmine over and over. Uh, I think we saw it in theaters and we, of course, had it on tape or DVD, whatever format was available at the time. And we're just constantly quoting the movie. Uh, and to this day, I will say things like, I want you, I need you, oh baby, oh baby, in the same <laughs> way that Julia's Styles delivers it. And so I think that it's just, it, it gives you this warm feeling of this shared experience of loving this movie and loving this moment in time where suddenly the world decided to make an interesting movie for me that felt like it was for me. Like I think before clueless there was kind of not as many teen movies or things that were really targeted towards like young adults in the same way, or it, 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 it had ebbed at that point. And then I think around 1999 and the 2000s, it exploded again. And suddenly there was a ton of really cool media that was, you know, for people our age at the time. And 10 Things I Hate About You was definitely one of those things. Yeah, I, um, 
I mean, when you first picked it, I was like, all right. I remember. Whatever. Ten things I hate about you. I, I get it. All right. I, I didn't remember. I know that I had seen it, but I didn't remember it or anything. And I remember liking it after the after That's watching right. it. And like, hey, yeah, this is a good movie. But now going into it, knowing that I liked it, I got to appreciate it even more because I wasn't surprised by the fact that like, oh, yeah, this is cool. I was like, yeah, man, this is cool. Yeah, I think that, uh, that yeah. that's one of those things that I think prevents a lot of people from enjoying horror and romantic comedies. Both, I think both genres almost gatekeep themselves in a way where it's like you have to yeah. allow yourself to be willing to think like this movie could be good. Uh, in order to right. feel entertained by it. Like there's some people who are never going to touch Halloween or are never going to touch 10 things and and never know that there's something in it for them that's going to be compelling or artistic or interesting. So yeah, no, that is definitely one of the things that I found, you know, these genres are so different, but to me, that's a link is how... Yeah. How it's not always easy for people to see the merit of these genres when it's totally there. Uh, so that brings me to the question that you were trying to ask earlier, which is which movie should we do first? Also, just a reminder, uh, we're going to bring things back to the old format just for this episode and this episode only. Two movies. No. Oh, wait. Oh, what? Oh. Like special occasion. Special, okay, it's a special this is occasion. A special occasion where we are going to talk about both movies in one episode, which is what we used to do in the very beginning of the podcast. But it just it got too long, and ultimately, those of you who listen downloaded more when we split them. That that's the truth. Yeah, uh, that is. But <laughs> yeah, I think just. Like we talked about for for this hundredth episode, let's go ahead and and let's let's bring both movies together just like we used to. Uh, but yeah, which one first? Uh, I would vote for Halloween, but I could do either if you want to. Uh, yeah, if let's you... do Halloween. Let's go for it. All right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's go to Haddonfield. <laughs> So we talked already about why Halloween. John Carpenter saw Black Christmas one day and said, why not Halloween? And here we are yeah. today. <laughs> I mean, no, there's obviously <laughs> there's more to it than that. But I just I, I wanted to, to bring that in there. Uh, should we should we go ahead and dive into it? Yeah. All right. So Halloween, 1963, Haddonfield, Illinois, six-year-old Michael Myers has stabbed, or he stabs his teenage sister Judith to death with a kitchen knife. And we've talked, I mean, we're talking about it again. We, we might as well. This opening scene is pretty awesome. You've got that Black Christmas first-person POV of the killer, but I think, isn't it meant to be unclear that this is a child until he comes out of the house and you see it was a child? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, um, 
yeah, that's not something that you know right away off the bat. And he's um, a cute little blonde child. Like, he looks normal. Right. And I yeah. learned that this was a deliberate choice. John Carpenter wanted a beautiful child and a handsome oh, man for the face reveal. Right. Uh, plus, this movie was innovative because they didn't... Um, I mean, other movies had done long takes and stuff oh, like I that Oh, I forgot. Before, you told but... me this is one take, right? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's one take. I mean, three three separate cuts. If you're if you're getting technical, you can find okay, them, find oh, where oh, they like like Hitchcock style, where they go to like something right. dark, and that's where the cut is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah it yeah, starts yeah. from outside the house, him watching the house, him spying on the sister, having sex with her boyfriend, foreshadowing. Yeah. But the steady cam, steady. This is one of the first instances, or like. Um, John Carpenter got a steady cam, which was new and expensive at the time. And that allowed them to have the freedom to like move all throughout the house and, and really, and by using that camera move in first person perspective. Uh, so great. Yeah. It, I mean, it's incredible and it's, and it's so unsettling to, as an audience, follow the perspective of the killer. I think now we're numb to it because it's a device that get used gets used pretty often. I think, you know, if we're talking about movies influenced by this, think about that scene in Silence of the Lambs when oh, um, yeah. he sees Starling with the night vision goggles. You know, it's just, it, it's such a great device uh, and it, it works well here. So... For the next 15 years, Michael Myers is incarcerated at Smith's Grove Sanitarium. And then October 30th, 1978, Michael's psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis, and his colleague, Marion Chambers, arrive at the sanitarium to escort Michael to court for the hearing. And this is when we learn that Loomis wants Michael to never get out. And he tells Marion his theory about Michael. We get the first of his monologues. Uh, I think something. This is. Oh, I was just going to say something that other female movie watchers may be interested in is that John Carpenter had a female collaborator, Deborah Hill, and they co-wrote this movie together in, I think the fact was, or the Wikipedia said it, it took three weeks for them to to write the script and Carpenter did all of the dialogue for Loomis uh, and the sheriff and all of that. And then Deborah Hill did all of the dialogue for Lori and her friends. Uh, so they each had an area where they were strong. So, so every, every time Loomis talks in this movie, now watching it for, I don't know, this is like third or fourth time. I just think of John Carpenter at the keyboard grinning. Like this is so much <laughs> yeah. fun um, because all uh, the scenery chewing is- from Donald Pleasance is so great. This is Donald. This is the intro to Dr. Loomis and he is idling like a race car would idle. He's just letting the engine sit. <laughs> That's a good and description. Then, and then boom, the very next scene we get Dr. Loomis. He is in full crazy Dr. Loomis mode where he's like, I told you not to let him out. Somebody must have taught him how to drive. Wait, oh, they address that in the movie? 
Yeah. Okay. They were like, he can't even drive. Well, he was doing well last night. Maybe someone here taught him. Yeah. Who taught him how to drive? Don't they address that in the Rob Zombie Halloween or something? Like he has a friend in the mm. sanitarium. I I tried to. Well, Danny Trejo is his I friend tried to watch that and, and I don't know. Maybe the less said about Rob Zombie, the better. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, so Michael, who somehow learned how to drive a car, even though he has been in a sanitarium since he was six. What I want to know is, did Michael go to school? Can he read good? Or does he have the maturity and intelligence of a six-year-old? Because he's in a sanitarium. He, he's not in a prison. Right. He's he's not a person. He's an oh, he's the sh- Didn't you listen to Dr. He's Loomis? The shape. This isn't a man. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I did. So, of course, Michael gets out. Uh, and he kills a mechanic for his coveralls. Uh, he, he, he knows the way back to Haddonfield. Like, doesn't need an almanac or anything. It just he, It's fate. He's spiritually drawn here. <laughs> Guided by Slashers fate. really are hometown heroes. You know, there's just... Yeah. Haddonfield is his his place. Uh, so then he steals knives, ropes, and a white expressionless mask from the hardware store. Cut to Halloween, where he sees Lori Strode drop off the key at the Myers house for her father to sell. So that is... That is really it for the origin of Michael's obsession with Lori. I mean, I think in later movies, spoiler alert, they try to make a familial connection between Michael and Lori. But her dad's just trying to sell his house and he saw her there and he didn't like that. Uh, And maybe he kind of associates her and her friends with his sister, which... I think we we see later is definitely the case for Annie. Uh, And yeah, no, that 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 scare, though, of him popping into the doorway frame, because like I was expecting something to happen, like subtle scare. I thought he was going to open his open the door. Like the first time I saw it, I was expecting like, okay, this is a horror movie killing. But the movie just oh, they tease you. They tease you for so long. The movie sets up the first half of the movie of like Michael Myers is right there, but then as the as the latter half of the movie starts to develop, it's like wait a minute, he's gone. Where is he? Now I'm scared. Like it starts to get even scarier the less you see Michael. Oh right, and another thing again, watching this movie, I I thought about it follows. How you don't get to have It Follows without Halloween. Yeah. It Follows is basically just the first half of Halloween, but the whole movie. Right. And it's just as unsettling. It's it's really scary. So, yeah, Lori starts to see Michael popping up randomly, but it's so subtle. It reminds me of, have you ever had somebody show you a ghost video or a video that's supposed to be evidence of a ghost? And maybe the first time you watch the video, you don't see quote unquote it, but then they're like, no, over there in the corner, it's there. And then you see it and it's extremely unsettling. I think that is the effect of how they posed Michael. There's, there's practically no jump scares in this movie. I mean, maybe one or two, uh, but most of it is just the shape 
standing and unsettling. Uh, so while this is happening, uh, Loomis arrives in Haddonfield and you're right. He's full on crazy mode. The hunt is on. He's looking for traces of Michael. He's been his doctor for 15 years. And even though Michael's done nothing but stare at the wall, Loomis understands him intimately. Yeah. He, I, I don't Stared through the wall, <laughs> stared through the years, to stared this through day. everything to this night. <laughs> this, <laughs> that was, uh, that was really good. Yeah. Props to Johnny for that one. Uh, <laughs> but, but so he finds out that Judith Byers tombstone is missing. And I, I liked his whole conversation with the gravekeeper or the gravekeepers trying to yeah. tell him this story. And Loomis interrupts him because he's got his own story that he's in the middle of. It's great. And this combined with like the whole first section of Laurie Strode, just hanging out with her friends. This is one of the first movies where I was like, why is this movie scary? And one of the things that I, I pegged is like the secret weapon for horror movies is make your characters funny. You know what I mean? Like if, if we like the characters, if your characters are funny, then we don't want to see them go. Yeah, and her friends are funny and cool and interesting and they go out and they have fun and they do things. It's And it's not so much that it's it's like, I, I feel like, Friday, not Friday, yeah, Friday the 13th, not Nightmare on Elm Street, but the teens in Friday the 13th are so fucking obnoxious that you just want them to die. But and in that ha- is a certain appeal. But in Halloween, to, that's a certain kind in of In Halloween, you don't feel that way. All these characters are right. doing the same thing, but they're so funny and charming and cool. Right. Uh, in our last episode, we talked a lot about how cool Annie is. She's the sheriff's daughter, but she smokes weed. She's trying to hook up. Um, she's trying to hook up Lori with uh, Tramer, Ben Tramer, uh, yeah. help her friend uh, Lindsay and Bob get it on at the house she's babysitting. She's just. She's just down for whatever. And you know what I say is the sign of a great female character? She helps other women. Oh, I thought you were going to say taking off your clothes at the slightest bit of uh, popcorn butter being spilled. You know, when we've... That's a close second. When we first discussed this movie, I was very triggered by the gratuitous (laughs) popcorn butter striptease. (laughs) But I've had several of my shirts ruined by grease recently and had to purchase a specific kind of shout spray. So (laughs) I can understand her anger at getting popcorn butter all over her clothes because it is really frustrating to get a grease stain. Did she need to take off all of her clothes? (laughs) I don't know, but she did. And she looks really cute in that men's shirt. So, you know what? I give yeah. Annie a pass because she's fucking cool. And yes, grease stains st- suck. But yeah, I, I, I've got my side eye on you, John Car- Carpenter. It, <laughs> I don't think Deborah Hill wrote that one. 
<laughs> Debbie, what if we spilled popcorn butter on her? She had to take her clothes off. Well, John, I think if you it's your movie, whatever you want. <laughs> hey, you know what? If you're gonna, it, it, John Carpenter made a product to, for that's the that's one of the crazy parts about this movie is it really was like a gun for hire thing. They were like, hey, the producer of the movie was like, I just want to have Halloween. And I want to have like babysitters being killed. Like I just want to make like a spooky, scary tale of you know babysitters being being. Well, I think they're inspired by like folklore. You know, everybody's heard random stories, like the calls coming from inside of the house and that kind of thing. Yeah, and so, but like John Carpenter went above and beyond. In part, but part of the aspect of making that kind of movie is like, yeah, you gotta have the grindhousey aspect of, uh, you know, uh, there's a little bit of a little bit of boobies or a little bit of butts. Uh, so yeah, we're I mean, fans. Of he did put the butts in seats. This was one of the highest grossing movies of all time when you adjust for inflation and account for budget. Oh, God, there's been nothing like tiny. this at this time, I'm sure. Oh, Other than Black such Christmas. Such a tiny, cheap budget. Right, but that didn't have the the as big of a cultural splash. For understandable reasons. I think that, right. that this, yeah, is, that movie's this is bonkers. This is a much tighter script. I mean, yeah, I would say yeah. that if you're a fan of camp and John Waters and drag and bonkersness, I think Black Christmas might be more your deal. But yeah, Halloween took that and and I would say elevated it. Yep. Uh, but so Michael does kill the Wallace's dog, uh, the dog of the girl that Annie is babysitting. So if you were wondering if a dog dies in this movie one, but I mean, it basically happens off screen. Uh, yeah, I was going to say for a movie that's like very much like grindhousey in that regard of like, yeah, blood and boobs and butts. Uh, the dog killing was, I, I didn't mind it. And that's as someone who, like most normal people, hates it when they kill the dog. Yeah, it was no, it was no lobster and it was no, uh, what was that Australian? Rogue. Yeah, it was no. Yeah, were they, yeah. Oh, and again, paying somebody to CGI digitize a dead dog is just a waste of money in my opinion. Uh, I hear you. But, but. Now is one of my favorite scenes where, so after this, Tommy, the boy that Lori is babysitting, just sees Michael, the shape, standing on the porch of the Wallace house, and he shouts that he sees the boogeyman. Uh, And Lori's like, no, you don't see anything. And then, of course, when she looks out the window, he's gone. But, oh, God, that's so scary to me because it feels like something that could happen to you where you'd be looking out the window one day and just see someone who's not supposed to be there yeah i don't like that's just one of those things where like i you know i i can fantasize about it in the way that you know i i like i I fantasize about action scenes happening in my life. Like, Oh, what if I was in a car chase right now? Like, but to actually think about like, what if I walked into my living room and there was just someone 
standing in the window. Like, what? It's a nightmare. What? I used to have nightmares <laughs> about strange people standing in our backyard and wanting to come inside yeah. and get us. I, I feel like it taps right into the collective nightmare imagination. Just that image in itself. It's very powerful. Uh, so Annie dresses up in a cute little Oxford shirt that covers her like a dress, takes Lindsay over to the Doyle house so that Annie, or sorry, Lori now has two kids to take care of. So then Annie can go and pick up her boyfriend, Paul. Uh, but when she gets into her car, surprise, Michael's in the back seat and then he strangles her. You know, I think a lot of people associate Michael with a knife, but he does a lot more strangling in this movie. Well, I thought it was interesting. What I noticed, and oh, talk about great movie. You're still finding things to find in the in the movie. Like, I think one of the reasons why Jamie Lee Curtis got dubbed the, the screen queen, uh, not just because she went on to do a bunch of splatter fest movies where she screamed a lot, but... In this movie, the characters being killed, other than the sister at the very beginning, they don't get to scream. They don't. Because he's choking them. He does stab them, but he's choking them. The only time we really get screaming is from Lori, and that's the final 15 minutes of the movie is Lori being attacked relentlessly and screaming for help, and no one will help her, so she has to do it herself. Oh man, what a movie! It, it's oh yeah, that those last fifteen minutes are just so precious and earned. Uh, again, well done. You know how I feel about a ninety-minute movie. Uh, so Annie is killed. R.I.P. Annie. We'll get back to that in the remix. Uh, <laughs> soon after Linda, I called her Lindsay. It's Linda. Uh, Linda and Bob arrive, find the house empty. Sweet. Let's go down to pound town. They go upstairs. Very comfortable in an, in another person's house. This is 1978. You know, everybody's right. comfortable right. in each other's houses. <laughs> uh, weirdly so. Uh, and so they, they're ready to just go. Uh, and then after having sex, and it is funny because it does kind of look like Bob just puts in a few pumps and then rolls over. And Linda's like, that was the best. <laughs> I I did not register that this was actual sex when I watched it the first time. I did not. I, I, I did not. My brain didn't grasp it. It was such a car. It's such a cartoony version <laughs> of what sex is and it's uh, but also very economic gotta say right sometimes faster is better I, yeah we've only I, got 90 i minutes. just don't think we needed an extended sex right. scene between linda and bob in the middle of our movie also while all of this is going on loomis is just hanging out at the myers house just waiting for michael to come back also in an earlier scene scaring kids away. we didn't talk about this but luma speculates that uh michael not not the same dog that he killed at the wallace house but they find a dead dog in right. the myers house and Loomis says he got hungry <laughs> he got hungry <laughs> it's so great 
Um, so Michael kills Bob and this, I was prepared for it this time, but the first time I watched the movie for the podcast, when Michael pops out and scares Bob or kills Bob, it did get me that one. I will admit did get me. This is just like when we talked about the descent. Uh, there's a there's a one specific shot in the descent that basically mimics this shot. We talk about movies owing things to this mm-hmm. movie. Um, in this shot, he goes to the back door, which is open, and he's looking out. So maybe Michael Myers is going to attack him. Nope. So he opens up one of the cabinets. Maybe Michael Myers is going to attack him. Nope. So then he goes to open up the other cabinet and i don't know if you're like me i'm the first time i'm thinking the first time i'm watching this movie i'm thinking oh well so much of this movie has been michael myers not attacking people maybe he's not going and then he opens the door and boom michael myers up up against the wall lifted up stabbed and then very cinematically we show him dying with the feet being lowered and then myers for the first time we see him just like standing there looking at his own kill and just like tilting his head from side to side like Uh, a dog right it's this is probably my favorite kill of any horror movie i just i remember now you saying that before where Uh, uh, the funny thing too is the next scene which i find really scary michael posing (laughs) as bob under a sheet putting his glasses over the sheet to say oh i'm bob because i have his glasses (laughs) uh and i remember you telling me that you thought that this scene was goofy and silly uh yeah it is goofy and silly. but i think that's also what makes it scary oh (laughs) yeah but yeah so he just he Linda thinks that she's teasing Bob, but really it's Michael. Uh, and she starts to call Lori uh, and talk to her. And then Michael strangles her with the telephone cord. But her dying sounds are so orgasmic that Lori thinks that she's just messing with her. But also we get the it's kind of a callback or whatever to um, the obscene chewing earlier in the night kind of being a sort of prankish Mm -hmm. dismissive thing where she's like, oh, it's just the girls goofing with. Right, right. They make it very easy for her to jump to that conclusion. Uh, So now Loomis discovers that the stolen car uh is down the street so michael this whole time he's been waiting for michael to come to the myers house meanwhile michael's just having a free-for-all at all these other places uh but loomis is finally on to it uh Lori puts the babies to bed and then very bravely goes over to the wallace house to see what's going on And that's when the last 15 minutes of hell begins, goes up to the bedroom, sees that Bob and Linda and Annie, who has been posed on the bed with Judith Myers headstone (laughs) above her. So like, of course, like she just sees this insane killer tableau. I mean, you know, I'm sure Brian Fuller, I think that's who did Hannibal, right? 
um, yeah, yeah, yeah. saw this and was like, what if all kills were like this? Yeah, you could do you. You could have every week a different serial killer who does these, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, what? So she she freaks out. She runs out of the house. Uh, and wait, no, no, no. I think yeah. All, all the doors have been locked or secured from the outside, so she's got to fight her way out. Well, wait. Then she's got to. Go I'm ahead. trying to remember exactly the sequence of events. So she sees the tableau. She's freaking out. She's crying. Oh, this is a really great shot. Where's Michael? He's literally in the shadows no. behind her. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's literally in the shadows yeah. behind her, and you can't see him until you see that fucking mask. The light reflecting off of that white mask. What a great touch to take this Captain that... Kirk mask and paint it white. <laughs> so there's this luminous white face that just appears. And uh, the the cinematographer of this movie is Dean Kundi, who went on to shoot some of the best movies of all time. Jurassic Park. Back to the Future. I mean, this guy is—he gets—he's huge. You've seen many of his movies, but in this movie, yeah, just the subtle touch of working within his budget and going—you know what would be scary—is we could make it so that if you put this light on a dimmer, his face will just appear out of nowhere, and that is such an iconic wonderful shot oh it's perfect and then rather than strangle her like he's done everybody else we talked about michael comes out and he slashes her arm with the knife and then she falls off the banister and down the stairs and then runs out of the house across the street where she wakes up tommy and it's very scary because michael myers is doing his slasher unhurried walk across the street he's coming but he's not, you know, he's not in a rush. Uh, but it's still right. scary. I mean, precisely for that reason. Uh, and Tommy lets her in. Lori locks the door, orders Tommy and Lindsay to hide. Phone is dead. Possibly it's been cut. Uh, oh. And that's when she notices that the window is open and oh, so distressing for Lori in this moment. Uh, and she manages to grab a hold of a knitting needle, which I think she stabs in the neck. Uh, and she thinks, okay, that's it. I stabbed him in the neck. Now he's, he's dead. dead. Yeah, he's he's got to be dead. dead. Yeah, so she yeah, goes yeah. to check on the kids. But surprise, surprise, Michael is alive. But... You can't kill the boogeyman. No, you can't. You can't kill him. Uh, and so when Michael appears behind her, she tells the kids to hide again. And then she goes into the bedroom closet and launches a thousand movies with this same exact scene. The closet is where we go to hide from the killer. And we get this great scene of his shadow passing by the closet and then he breaks through the flimsy ass closet doors and yeah. turns on the light and exposes her. 
And uh, she manages to stab him in the eye with a coat hanger, which gets him to drop his knife so then she can stab him with it. Uh, And then she... Finally, Michael Myers is dead. Yeah, surely now. This time. This time, Michael Myers is dead. So she tells Tommy and Lindsay to go down the street and ask for help, get the police... And it's great because just as they're leaving is when Loomis is walking up and he's not even like, he's not even concerned. He's not like, kids, are you all right? He's just like, I'm clearly at the right house. Like this is, this is what I was looking for all day. Uh, (laughs) And Lori's just having a moment and they, they filmed this really well. I, I thought this was a great shoot, a great, I don't know, scene, cut, shot, uh, where she's crying. And then in the background, you see Michael sit up. But he doesn't just sit up. He sits up and then he turns. So it's very, very robotic, robotic, which makes it even scarier. And so then he... Okay, so... Well, so this is like, he kind of gets up like Frankenstein or the mummy or Dracula, right? Like Dracula rising out of his coffin, the old Universal Studios Dracula. So this is like John Carpenter. I mean, he he puts it in the movie itself. He's bringing back a touch of that hammer horror. Yeah, he's got that like, that classic horror feel. But then also, if, if that genre had a baby with, giallo and grew up like and grew up that would be this movie you could take italian horror movies and old black and white monster movies and smush them together this is what you get you get a reese's peanut butter cup of italian horror and monsters i feel like it's it's hard to oversell the fact that this had not been done before at this time i think now we are so used to seeing genres mixed up or this kind of movie that it doesn't feel innovative anymore because it's just been copied so many times uh but it really was totally different from anything else at the time uh so michael finally this is also just kind of quick this is in the 70s kind of the golden age of cinema you got scorsese coming up you got spielberg coming up this is when people talk about this is when film people started actually going to school to learn film and this is sort of the beginning of people who have actually studied film because before that people were kind of just making it up as they go now you have people who are like wait a minute let's watch what all these other people did and then do that but take the parts that we liked and use them in more effective ways or or use that as shorthand so that we can play with this other thing you've just described quentin tarantino's entire career oh quentin tarantino is like that if you mixed all of that in a blender with cocaine and put it on high spin, like and gave it a foot fetish. Speed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think you're completely right about that. And that's a really good angle to bring up. So finally we get a face reveal and I totally forgot that we got a Michael Myers 
face reveal. And surprise, surprise, he has a wonky eye, but generally he's a fairly good looking dude. Well, he just got stabbed in the eye. Oh, that's right. <laughs> he just got stabbed in the eye. But he's a normal looking blonde dude. In fact, right. when I was reading up on the movie, like I said earlier, John Carpenter specifically chose this actor for the face reveal. The actor who plays Michael Meyer or stands in as Michael Meyer for most of the shots is another actor completely. But for the face reveal... Yeah. Nick Castle. Yeah, Nick Castle is is him most of the time. And then for the face reveal, it was somebody else. Uh, I can't recall the actor's name. Uh, but he specifically yeah. wanted it to be a handsome guy as, as there's supposed to be kind of this contrast between Michael's face and his true face, which is expressionless. And I like that he's not able to continue with killing Lori until the mask is back on. Yeah, that's that's the source of his evil powers i mean it's like samson's hair for sure the mask is very important because he kills his sister while wearing the clown mask right rob zombie would go on to explore this mask thing oh really oh is that a big is that a big part of the 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 rob zombie halloween of of the of the michael myers origin story yeah but you see that's the thing is you don't need (laughs) the long ass origin story this movie gives you michael's origin story right it from the get-go you you only need that five to ten minutes to really get a sense of who michael is and then Loomis's monologues shade in the rest of the details. What more do you yeah. need? Uh, and I think that's part of the character's power. They're the shape. How do you describe the shape? Yeah. It's the shape. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think the more the more you know about something, the less scary it is. So I, I don't know. I, it's not a creative choice I necessarily agree with. But uh, Loomis shoots Michael six times knocking him off the balcony. Uh, Lori asks Loomis if Michael was the boogeyman. Loomis confirms. As a matter of fact, it was. <laughs> yeah, no, it isn't. This isn't a man. This is a creature. This yeah. is the devil. Uh, and when he looks over the balcony, Michael has vanished. And another fun fact I read about the movie was they shot it two ways. They shot it with Loomis surprised and Loomis unsurprised because Donald Pleasance told John Carpenter, he he said, I think that he wouldn't be surprised. And then that's right. He's like, well, we'll do it both ways and you use whatever one you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, they made the right decision. Oh, absolutely. I also thought it was really cute that, uh, like you said, John Carpenter was a hired gun and Donald Pleasance prior to this had been in the James Bond movies he was essentially the oldest and most established person on the set. And so John Carpenter was very intimidated by Donald Pleasance. But then they ended up getting on very well and becoming good friends because Donald Pleasance took the project seriously. He asked some very specific questions about his character and, you know, once he understood what the character was, was happy to play Dr. Loomis in as many movies as Dr. Loomis appeared in. And I, I find that to be very heartwarming. 
Yeah, he, yeah. It's nice. But also, god damn, it's gotta just be fun as an actor to have someone just go, you, you get to do whatever you want, you know, just go crazy, go crazy. Right, right, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's great. And then we get a, a very Black Christmas ending, which is seeing all of the places that Michael has been while hearing his heavy breathing in the background. He's everywhere and nowhere. Oh. All right. Turn on, uh, go to bed. Good luck. Yeah, good luck going to sleep after that. <laughs> Michael's definitely not coming to get you. So I got to ask, this time around, who did you have a crush on? Well, so in, in the original, in episode zero, it was Dr. Loomis for sure. And, but if you've listened to the I thought we also talked about podcast, Annie. You might have mentioned Annie too. I think you mentioned was Annie, I the but one, I was fully Was I the one board. who liked yes. Annie? Okay. You loved Annie. You were a big Team Annie fan. I'm still, the only um, thing that you're going to learn from this is that I'm an even bigger Team Annie fan than I was last yeah, time. Yeah, she's, she's so great. Um... But, like, if you've listened to the podcast, you know we always refer back to, like, anytime there's a crazy scientist or crazy doctor type. It's like, we're always comparing it to Dr. Loomis. That's always my favorite character of Dr. the Dr. Loomis is the platonic you, ideal of crazy doctors. Yeah, but you kind of made a little mention of it. And um, that's where I kind of mentioned using comedy as a as a tool in a horror movie. I really like the graveyard keeper <laughs> because you he's would. got two minutes in the movie, but he's like, he's such a well, he's kind of like a Coen brother character. He's so out of place, but at the same time in place, he's the only character in the movie who talks like that, who acts like that. And it's so unique and it's just the right amount of spice in that scene for him to like go on about the guy who killed his family. And then like Dr. Loomis interrupts him. And then he's like, Oh, these kids are always taking these things. Let me see who's in it. Who's could it possibly be 1819 Myers. It's the Myers grave. And like, that's all, that's all we need from that character is just all we need is to get from the car to the grave. And that, and he fulfills that magnificently. I wanted to hear yeah. the rest of his story. I know. And that's what yeah, a good character will will uh, leave you wanting more. I would agree with that. So it's been well established that I am a big Annie Brackett stan. Um, but honestly, I would say that this time I really appreciated Laurie and Jamie Lee Curtis's yeah. acting having recently seen her in everything everywhere all at once which we saw together in theaters it's really still crushing it, yeah it. she's still crushing it so i was just saying yeah this time i am all about jamie lee curtis as Lori. she's responsible she cares for the children she cares for her friends She's a the old Girl Scout comes through again. She's just uh yeah, she's a strong female character. And I think we owe it to John Carpenter and Deborah Hill that one of the enduring tropes of horror is the final girl, is that it's a last woman standing, not last man standing. Although you've got some final boys with 
Bruce Campbell and even Tommy Doyle to a certain extent. Yeah. Ah, Tommy Jarvis. That's who I was thinking of. Well, Tommy yeah. Jarvis is the other Tommy who gets to be a final right. boy for Jason. Yeah, there's a book, I think, by Grady Hendrix called The Final Girls Club or something like that. I haven't read it, but I I would. <laughs> so we are back here again talking about Halloween as a rom-com. Refresh my memory. What? Just give me a quick rundown. What was the rom-com you wrote for our very first episode? Uh, from what I can remember, it involved like a it involved a boy who wanted to go out with a girl, but the only way to do that was to throw a Halloween party. Ah. And early on in the Halloween party, he gets a mask stuck on him, and so then he has to be like a silent film character. He can't talk for whatever reason, and he's got a mask on him, and he's got to like. He's got to maneuver these party antics while trying to date the girl or, like, get the girl's attention. Is he wearing the and Michael so... Myers mask? Yeah. I Okay. I I feel ashamed to admit that I do not remember this, but I I love it. I think it's I think it's a great concept. And, yeah, what a way to start off your rom-com writing career. <laughs> Uh, what about this time? Did you think to change it or, or what did you go for? Did you do the mind meld that you thought about? Yeah. So like with, uh, the holiday episodes we do where we combine both movies into one, I decided to combine both remixes into one. And so I have, I have one movie. You have one. So now it's reversed. You have I have one movie and you have two. Oh, so you have one movie that is a combination between Halloween and 10 Things I Hate About You? That's correct. I'm very excited. So yeah, as Brett said in our holiday episodes, which you should absolutely listen to, especially Thanksgiving, we are the only podcast that is going to talk about Hannah and her sisters versus Thanksgiving I guarantee it. There's just no one else out there who's going to do that. But we cross that road for you. And if they if they do, it's as an homage to exactly, us. exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Brett Brett's holiday tradition has been to mix the movies. And since this is our hundredth episode, I'd say that's a fucking holiday. Yeah. I mean, it's not a national holiday, definitely not a bank holiday, but we'll get there. Yeah, I was just going to say. We'll get there one day. One day we'll have our we, President's Day. <laughs> we'll we'll have to start recording on Sundays again if we want if we want to declare Praise. our our episodes national bank holidays. Praise be. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know if you remember, but when, when I did my rom-com of Halloween, I was very, very set on it being a Gary Marshall holiday movie with, a you know, a bunch of interconnected stories. Uh, but yeah. I completely changed my mind, uh, for this go around. What about you? 
Uh, I actually kind of have, I dabble more into the Gary Marshall holiday. Ooh, so you pick up where I Uh, left off. I really like that. That's right. Well, since we can't get your whole vision until we talk about 10 things I hate about you, I guess that means I should go ahead, right? Yeah. Okay, Brett. When I was writing this, I was laughing a lot because I was thinking about what you would say because it combines some of the things that you've both lamented and praised about my remixes over 100 episodes. So this is Here this is go. this has a funny title and your biggest criticism of my remixes and I would also say it is your biggest praise. There's still a bunch of killing in it. Yeah. <laughs> This is going to be a slaughter fest. (laughs) So in the tradition of blood, the last period, the name of this movie is called season of the bitch. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. (laughs) And it's a romantic comedy musical sequel to Halloween. Years after the events of Halloween. So nothing has changed about uh, the actual movie. Lori is at a really low point in her life. You know, she maybe she's in her 40s and she's going through a divorce with Ben Tramer. And we kick off our first musical number. Why did I marry Ben Tramer? Slash, is this what PTSD feels like? Uh, So Lori is a real estate agent, just like her dad. And while she's showing the Wallace house to a prospective buyer, we'll say it's a stereotypical millennial couple that looks really hipstery. Uh, Lori accidentally falls off the same balcony that Michael Myers fell off when Loomis shot him. Actually, technically, that was at the Doyle house. So I would change that. Okay, sorry. I meant the Doyle house. Or you could have her fall down the staircase. Oh, oh, she could fall down the staircase again. Okay. I forgot that there were multiple places for her to fall from. So, yeah, it can (laughs) still be at the Wallace house. She falls over the staircase. She's injured, but she survives. And when she wakes up, she sees Annie Brackett standing over her. Next song. This isn't happening. Oh, so and and Annie Brackett is the same. She's wearing the same clothes that she was wearing when she got killed. So she's got that cute little, you know, Oxford shirt and knee socks get up. Uh, And during the this isn't happening number, uh, because a lot of the great things about musicals is that you can do exposition over a song so you can move the plot really quickly. So we're singing This Isn't Happening. And at the same time, there is a group of teens that are holding a seance at the Smith's Grove Sanitarium. We'll say that it's been shut down and it's gone, it's gone yeah. to seed. But they want to resurrect or they want to talk to Michael Myers from the beyond. Uh, and then one of the teens has brought their golden. I, what, I, <laughs> I, I just, as a fan of your movie, as a fan of your movie, I just got to point out the little bit of 
funniness here of if I was so much a fan of Michael Myers that I was going to do a seance to resurrect him in a sense, wouldn't I also know that he doesn't talk? <laughs> well, no, they, uh, they want, okay. They maybe, or are they trying okay, to maybe they aren't trying to, to talk to him. Maybe they're, do they play charades? With I, him? I don't know. Well, I mean, Michael can give other <laughs> two Michael words, can give, three syllables. <laughs> he can give other signs. Like he can, <laughs> He can animate a sheet. He, he Michael's a fan of practical. Okay, like Ouija board. He's a fan like of practical board. jokes, uh, like the sheet, the sheet yeah. and glasses. Trick or treat. Yeah, yeah, he likes trick or treat. So okay, yeah, they're trying to bring forth Michael, but they have an alternative way to communicate with him. <laughs> this is the this is the kind okay. of note that only a horror fan <laughs> would give. Like if I were telling this to one of my girlfriends, they'd be like, "And then what?" <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I'm glad that you're here to keep me, to keep me honest. Uh, so this is a very important pro- plot detail that I'm about to say. One of the teens has brought their golden retriever buddy to the seance. Oh, so the what <laughs> the teens successfully summon Michael Myers. But instead of trapping his soul in the vessel that they had planned, Buddy gets loose and runs into the center of the pentagram. Buddy. <laughs> so Michael Meyer has possessed a golden retriever. So instead of Air Bud, it's Kill Bud. Kill Bud. Something, something like that. But, you know, I just sometimes I think about John Carpenter's Halloween music playing over my dog staring at me. So I think that's right. a great inspiration for this. And you'll never believe this, Brett, but in the opening scene when Michael kills his older sister, I saw Ernie with a notepad and pen. So I don't know. I might not be around forever. Uh, but yes, Michael Myers is now a golden retriever in this romantic <laughs> comedy musical. And he he breaks loose. And of course, he runs to Haddonfield on his four legs. Um, it would be cute to see the golden retriever get behind the wheel of a car. But I, I don't know how right. zany we want to get with it. Uh, and, well, and that someone must have taught him how to drive. He was doing well <laughs> last night. <laughs> Actually, he should drive just so we can get yeah. this line. <laughs> Did someone teach your dog how to drive? I only taught him how to shake. <laughs> um, only forward though. We didn't teach him reverse yet. <laughs> Yeah, shifting gears is really hard yeah. when you have no opposable <laughs> thumbs. I did briefly think about making Michael Myers a cat, but no one would bring their cat to a seance unless it yeah, was in... Yeah, that's risky. But... Yeah, like, nobody would be unless like, I constant. have to bring my cat to this sanitarium. I can't leave him at home. Uh, but right. a golden retriever is also a good choice in my mind. Uh, so this also is the end of the, this isn't happening song. So all of this, like the chanting and Lori being like, this ghost isn't here. It's all happening at the same time. Yeah. 
And plus, John Carpenter wanted to cast Michael Myers as a pretty blonde boy. And so now we get Michael Myers as a pretty blonde boy. Exactly. Exactly. And he has soulless (laughs) black eyes, just like Lewis described. Uh, So, of course, Michael Myers closes in on Haddonfield in dog form. Lori also at the same time is learning why Annie has yet to pass on because I mean, where if I can see you, can I see Linda and Bob? Like, can I see everyone who died? No, it's just, it's just Annie. This is the Annie story, the Annie show. Uh, She tells her she can't move on until she gets revenge on Michael Myers. And she also wants to see Lori happy because she sees that her friend is a shell of her former self. What happened to the fun, cool girl she used to be? Lori is out of touch with the person that she was. She used to be this badass. She, mm. Annie, yeah. Annie is invested in Lori getting to live the life that was denied to her. Uh, and of course, Lori wants to argue, but knows Annie is right. And so Annie dares her to steal her daughter's pot and smoke a joint And so Lori smokes a joint and then the girls reminisce while a golden retriever sits menacingly uh, in the backyard. Like maybe we can pose the golden retriever the same way as Michael in the, the laundry clothesline. Right. uh, But it's a golden retriever or like behind the hedge, but it's a golden retriever, you know, just, just all, all the, all the great shots. Um, But then yeah, make it Ernie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and so Lori's getting high and then she realizes that she has an open house in 10 minutes cue to Uh the song too high for this open house (laughs) Uh, and then at the open house she meets Dan Brackett Annie's cousin and the newly elected sheriff and there are sparks flying, like, ooh, who's this guy? Oh. They're into each other. And maybe he kind of guesses that she's high and she feels super awkward yeah. about it. Like, she's eating all the cookies at the open house and it's just funny. Uh, and while this is happening, Annie is noticing that there's this golden retriever that's just wandering around by itself. And also it's able to see her. And oh, so, yeah, dogs have that sense. But I mean, it's not just that. It's like, why this dog? Why yeah. this dog? Uh, and this starts off the song, This Dog is Michael Myers. <laughs> uh, yeah. As Annie follows the dog while the dog does Michael Myers things. Like maybe the dog breaks into the hardware store and gets, you know, the rope and the knife and the other stuff, just like Michael did. Um, Right. And (laughs) Annie, of course, tries to tell Lori that this dog is Michael Myers. But Lori's like, you just can't lay more things on me. It's not enough that I'm seeing the ghost of my dead best friend, but now you're telling me that this dog is Michael Meyer. There's not a single person on this planet who is going to believe me if I tell them that the ghost of my best friend told me this dog is Michael Myers. Nobody's going to believe that. Uh, but that's crazy. <clears throat> yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy talk. But Annie, 
she needs to kill Michael Myers to move on. This is this is the one thing in the way of her ascension. She this is the great big fight, of course, between her and Lori. You've betrayed me. I never want to see you again. And I think it would be very touching for Annie to talk about how for years she's haunted Lori and watched her and been happy to observe her life. But now she never wants to see her again. <clears throat> so we get our, our movie low point. She goes into the light. Yeah. We have the movie low point. Annie and Lori aren't talking. Maybe things aren't going well with Dan Brackett. Uh, meanwhile, Michael Myers stalks grown-up Tommy Doyle, and we get a reprise of this dog is Michael Myers. And Michael manages to kill Tommy with a kitchen knife, even though he has no opposable thumbs. Uh, and Lori learns from Dan Brackett about Tommy's death, and Dan asks if Tommy had a dog. And that's when Lori knows that Annie was telling the truth. So then Lori goes to the Wallace house and shouts for Annie, and then they reunite and kick off the song Bitching Hour, an 80s montage song with Lori suiting up to face Michael Myers and Annie saying things like, what are you doing? He weighs 75 pounds. And then Lori says, of pure evil. Yeah. So, and what? Yeah, what was the note? I, I think Thor should make an appearance during Bitchin' Hour. Bitchin', yeah, especially, yeah, like when they get to the bridge of Bitchin' Hour and you need yeah. car solo and then Thor comes out of the closet and he just has his guitar and his getup and he just, you know, rips through a solo. I think that that would be perfect. Yeah, a little rock and roll, uh, rock and roll nightmare action going on. Oh, absolutely. So with Annie's help, Lori manages to tranquilize the dog. I, I can't, even if the dog is Michael Myers, I can't kill a dog in my movie. But he gets, no, tra it's impossible. He gets tranked uh, and they get him into a dog carrier. And she ends up telling Don or Dan everything. And surprisingly, he believes her. And he's like, you know, I always liked Annie. And one of the things I wanted to do as sheriff is to, to really bring her killer to justice. And he's just like, he believes her. He knows that Lori's telling the truth. So, of course, they're meant to be together. Uh, and Annie, as a ghost, gives Lori her blessing. Like, please be with my cousin. This is wonderful. And yeah. she, you know, she crosses over. Lori, then we can make this a post-credit sequence. Lori delivers the golden retriever to Dr. Loomis, who is super confused. He's like, you brought me a dog? Lori's just like, look in his eyes. And then Loomis <laughs> says the line. He says, these eyes, the blackest <laughs> eyes. The devil's eyes. <laughs> and then we go into our finale song, Season of the Bitch. End of movie. End of movie. So yeah. the bitch had two meanings. <laughs> <laughs> I also like... 
I also like how you did the right Sulik treatment, which yes! is the rom-com musical. Big. And you did it for Halloween, which is a big franchise. And he did it for Friday the 13th. Big Part ups eight. to Wright Sulik for making me think of doing a musical. I will say that his was a jukebox musical in that he was right. using like Moulin Rouge style uh already used songs and they were good songs like Wright has great taste but i really did want to come up with original songs for this even if it was just the the title yeah no this is a this is a soundtrack i would buy i think my favorite is too high for this open house <laughs> but yeah that that's the yeah. fun goofy number the bend and snap I, number. <laughs> right. Yeah, I like it. Um, I I'm impressed. I'm impressed by how by how you're always able to fit death and murder into your romantic comedies. <laughs> I just thought it would make things spicier. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a remix, not? right? You gotta have elements of horror in the remix. Why not? Why not let the body just fall on the car still in every version? <clears throat> yeah, no, I mean, let this be a lesson to rom-com writers. You could add a little more death and mayhem and nobody will be hurt by it. <laughs> I think that that it can, I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 things I hate about you would not be improved by somebody dying. It's enough that they get punched in the face. Uh, right. but something to consider. Uh, so getting into the second half of this podcast, 10 things I hate about you. Uh, what to say before we get into the story? Well, I just want to add that one of the things that I think makes this movie so great is the female writing team duo behind it. And that is yeah. Kirsten Kiwi Smith and Karen McCullough. And I once again brushed up on the oral history of 10 things. One of them was working in LA as a script reader, read the other script, reached out to her and said, Hey, I, I really like your script. And I think that that particular script got passed up, but they hit it off and wrote this movie together over mail, like not email, like they would actually write pages and then mail it to each other from Denver to LA to complete the story. And that's so crazy for me to think about because everything today is just so instant that, yeah, I can't imagine writing something and then putting it in the mail and then waiting for it to come back from you with notes or something like that. Yeah. I was just going to say, but that would also like this movie just has so much energy to it that like, it kind of makes sense because every time they got a package in the mail, they'd be like, Oh, here's the brand new toy I get to play with, or, you know, the new and improved version of the toy that I get to play with. That's like, a really good point. There's a, there's an undercurrent of excitement that's just running through this movie and it's very buzzy. 
yeah. and and I think that's a good point. And so this is the movie that they first got attention for. They went on to write another movie we've talked about in the podcast, Legally Blonde. Something that uh, one of the things we talked about Legally Blonde being was a perfect example of great pacing. It is just mm-hmm. a perfectly paced movie from beginning to end. And for the most part, I, I mean, 10 Things I Hate About You has some weird scenes where I'm like, I don't understand why this is here. Like we talked about the bicycle scene. Uh, but generally the pacing for 10 Things, much like Halloween, is very solid, very tight. We get into the plot of the movie within 15 minutes and we're locked and ready to go and just see where where that takes us. Yeah. And I like movies that outwardly state the challenge of like, here's the challenge. You get to date as long as she gets to date. The external like, conflict okay, we, is yes. very well established. Yeah, so I I like that. I I like it when when filmmakers because that that just allows you to have fun with the hijinks. Because you'll have to go back and listen to other episodes where I try to break down movies that don't do hijinks well. I think this movie does hijinks pretty well. Oh, this movie has so as a few hijinks that are just so memorable. That I think people still, it's been, you know, over 20 years since this movie was released and people still talk about it. Uh, I also think another thing this movie did perfectly was the casting. I was reading that they pushed to get James Vanderbeek and Katie Holmes as Patrick and Kat. And, you know, no offense to Katie Holmes and James Vanderbeek, but it just would not have worked. And I was actually shocked to learn that most of the actors at the time were the age of their characters. So Joseph Gordon Levitt, Julia Stiles, um, and Larissa Olenek, who played Bianca were all 17. Uh, And then uh, the guy who played Joey and Heath Ledger were 19 and then Gabrielle Union and David Krumholtz were already in their 20s. So they were the big sister and brother of the group. But generally, right. Heath Ledger was like the leader. And then the rest of them were, they were, they were still teenagers and they, they acted like teenagers. And, you know, I, I really, you know, everybody in the movie seemed like they were experienced actors because they'd all had you know, long child TV actor careers prior to this. Um, but that youthful energy is really there. Yeah. And this time around, I wasn't as picky about some of the strange choices that characters would make or anything like that. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Oh teenage, David Crumble's teenager is messy. Is so ridiculous. <laughs> but he's supposed to be ridiculous. Yeah, but he, yeah, just uh, characters do stupid things or they're mad for stupid reasons. Yeah, that's what being a teenager is. Yeah, I think that they they captured that really well. Or, 
you know, recently I, I watched the latest season of Bridgerton, which is, you know, a, a pretty big event if you're a historical romance fan, if you're a romantic comedy fan. Uh, and the latest is, season does hinge on this relationship between sisters. And so it was interesting for me to watch 10 Things I Hate About You now but specifically looking at the relationship between Kat and Bianca and how the movie portrayed that and how satisfying that storyline is in addition to the romantic storylines that they throw out for the characters. Uh, It just, yeah, this is a great movie uh, for anybody who's a fan of Shakespeare, who's a fan of well-written female characters they were apparently really inspired by Clueless as a retelling of Emma and their launching for the project was what if we did our own retelling of something? What if it was Shakespeare? What if it was the taming of the shrew, but she doesn't get tamed in this version. So it, it was like a restorative narrative, the taming of the shrew from an angry teenage girl perspective. Right. So, of course, as an angry teenage girl in 1999, I ate that shit up. It was a revelation. Uh, Yeah, and then also the adult actors in this movie, so great. Allison Mm -hmm. Janney, Larry Miller. um, Who's the guy who plays Mr. Chapin? David Leisure. Um, the, the actor who plays Mr. Morgan, um, yeah, just pitch, pitch perfect. Uh, all right. I, I will shut up if you want to get into the actual movie. Yeah. So when talking about the movie, it's going to be hard to, to convey how economic this is, but I will just say right off the bat that this movie is great about having like buttons or ribbons on, on the tail end or beginning of each scene. So uh, often like the, the, the one that I can think really of the do most this well, like all the music that they use in the movie, like when they switch from bare yeah. naked ladies to Joan Jett in the opening scene. Yeah. That's a, yeah. And that immediately tells us who that character is, but um, like the, the, um, the romantic writing that Allison Janney does is just like a good way to get in and out of a scene. You know what I mean? Just there's so many things in this movie that like, Oh, oh yeah. That's a perfect way to just get out. It's perfect. But also it it's not only is it a great frame for the, all right, let's introduce the two transfer students, Cameron and Patrick but also she gets to do so much um, humor with the romance thing. Like I am a hundred percent Miss Perky at this point in my life. Uh, And the way that she, (laughs) like when Patrick comes in and he talks about this joke with the bratwurst and she says, Oh, really? Um, really hopeful aren't we yeah (laughs) and he just looks at her like why are you talking to me this way it's it's (laughs) it's just a great you're right it's a great little ribbon on the scene uh but yeah tell tell us about it 
how do we start off? Yeah, so we start off with Cameron James, right? And he's the new student at uh, the high school in Seattle. And uh, what's his name? Michael. Michael is sort of the geeky guy. And Michael is his his tour guide through the high school. So they go through all the clicks. But of course, all the clicks aren't just your standard clicks. They have fun with it. It's like the cowboys and the the white Rastafarians. <laughs> yeah. And stuff. So like they're, they're more it's not ridiculous than the mean girl clicks. Right. And so it's funny, but right away, for like no reason, Cameron James develops an instant teenage boy crush on Bianca. And Bianca's kind of like clueless ish. She's she's kind of vain and airheaded, but like as we get to know her more, we do get to see that you know there's more under there. Um, I mean, I guess you know it's funny that uh, that she likes she likes her shoes, but loves her Prada bag. <laughs> I thought that I thought that was fun. Uh, I I think if. If you were a millennial, uh, did you ever watch The Secret World of uh, Alex Mack? Yeah. So she was always immediately recognizable to me for that movie. And apparently Larissa Olenek, uh, she really wanted to play Cat. Uh, that was the role that, oh, that she, I mean, if you're an actress, that's the role you want to have. But then they did a chemistry check between her and Julia Stiles, and it just felt right. But she just exudes yeah. little sister energy. And it's, I mean, yeah. no, again, no offense to Larissa, but as a fellow little sister, you just, it takes one to know one. And that's kind of like her bubbly energy is very much that. Uh, but yeah, he instantly falls into puppy love and JGL um, is perfect to portray that because he looks like a oh, puppy. Yeah, right. Uh, that's pretty much the only thing he does in this movie is look like is a puppy, be a puppy and wag his tail. <laughs> only instead of wagging his tail, it's like his eyebrows. <laughs> um, but um, uh, the, the way that I would describe uh, uh, Bianca in a in a more light connotation is like, she's enjoying being a teenager. Yes. You know what I mean? Cat has moved beyond being a teenager. Cat is, cat is just like Laurie Strode. Boys think she's too smart. Yeah, she thinks she's fucking Frasier. Like she's, she's old. (laughs) Right. So we get those dynamics there. Um, and again, we we learn everything. Oh, we also meet Joey, who is a very mm-hmm. conceited, uh, vain model who just wants to bang chicks. He just wants he to bang attention. virgins, which is gross and creepy. Right. Um, and so he catches the Andrew eye of Bianca. Keegan. So Bianca. Did you know that Andrew yes. Keegan, the actor, is now a quote-unquote spiritual leader, in parentheses, cult leader? He quit. I did not. He quit acting and did a Nexium. Or, I, I mean, I don't think that they have been exposed in the same way, but yeah, he, right. he basically became that's, a cult leader. That's funny, because when I was watching this movie, I was thinking, like, man, this guy's pretty good. Like, I wonder what else he's done. You know what I mean? Did like, you I look up his credits? Job. 
Nope. No. Uh, yeah, I think he, he made a recent return to acting, but yeah, he quit acting for sure. many years to become a spiritual leader. Uh, but yeah, Joey is, hey. is an absolutely ridiculous character of a bully. Uh, and remember him because he's going to come up in my remix. <laughs> of course. Very nice. Um, and then all of that is in 10 minutes. And then for the next five minutes, we get a little bit of the family dynamic and more introduction to some of the characters. But uh, the, the, the best one for me has got to be Joey, uh, the dad or no, I'm sorry. Um, the dad, Larry Miller, the, the dad, Larry Miller. Yeah. He just, he, he's a, he's a comedian's comedian. Oh, he's so He knows funny. how to deliver a line. Uh, I wonder if they just let him great. improv. Like they just let him go in there and just, try out lines i think based on the script i would have to say that he probably had a very solid foundation to go off of but yeah he's the kind of comedian that you can put your trust into a into them and go hey we're giving you this role and we know that it's a good role and we know you'll make it even better uh that's what larry miller does in anything he does <laughs> um and so Bianca is frustrated by Kat and her rebelliousness. And Kat wants to go to uh, uh, St. Lawrence, which Sarah is Lawrence. all the way across the country. Oh, Sarah Lawrence. Right. And so we, we get some like family tension there. But at the same time, they're a family and they do all get along. They all they all fit fine in the same house. But the big thing is, again, the premise outright stated in the movie is you, Bianca, cannot date until your sister, Kat, starts dating. So. Oh, did you also catch this whole storyline about the mom being gone? Yeah, the mom is gone, which is, uh, I think, a fine move to like, it, it doesn't really come up until later in the movie. And it allows the two sisters to have a heart to heart to kind of be like, we don't have a motherly figure and we don't really connect as sisters. So for us to finally sit down and have this heart to heart, you feel like this is the, this is like, why now? Like is why now is because, you know, we, we, we like seeing them both and we want them to be friends. Right. I just, I want to mention that one of the things I discovered was when Disney picked up this movie, one of their notes was, why is she why is she so angry about cat right and in, instead of doing what they really wanted to do which was respond well teenage girls are angry about their position right. in life and you know blah 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 instead they took the note and they created this backstory so that they could have a reason to be like oh well she's angry cuz her mom left yeah it's the note behind the note which is we don't understand the motivation. So, you, so, you know, give us something easy. Yeah. Uh, right. And so that, that was that. Um, and so this is where the, the setup of the hijinks comes mm -hmm. in, which is Cameron is so puppy dog. All he does is stare at Bianca and we get it. Cause like, she's pretty, he's pretty. And it makes sense that they that he wants to be. If he with wasn't her. also sweet, he would be a nice guy. TM. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he's got a little bit of that in there, but it. 
Uh, yeah, I, I get you. Um, so what they do is they kind of have like, they ask people, Hey, does anyone want to go out with cat? You know, we'll, we'll pay, oh, we'll pay you or whatever. And no one is willing to do it. So they go up to Patrick, who is Heath Ledger and Patrick is the bad boy. And we know he's the bad boy because we hear so many bad things. I heard he ate a duck, everything, but the beak and the feet. (laughs) I heard he did this. I heard he blew up a convenience yeah. store. It, it, I do like how there's that air of dangerousness about him. But here's one thing about this movie that I've always found difficult to just take is that you've got this plot where Michael and Cameron decide to pull Joey into their scheme because they're not rich. But Joey is. They need a backer. They need a backer. So when they know that Patrick is the one, they set this in motion by getting Joey to approach Patrick and pay him. But at the end of all of this, Cameron and Michael, and really by some degree Bianca, because she's the one who basically tells Cameron, well... If you did find somebody that my sister could date, then I could date. None of those characters get punished for that. It's Patrick that takes the brunt of all of the punishment for the betrayal of Kat. When really, I feel like Cameron and Michael are the ones we should be mad at. And never once in the movie does someone be like, those are the dickheads that set this in motion. Yeah, I I get you. Yeah. But just you just I mean, that. but you just have to roll with it. It's the end. same thing with right. like 50 first dates. You have to accept that this is plausible. Not right. not plausible. By the end of the movie, I don't want to see these characters punished. Right, right. You, know I mean? you you just you just have to buy I like it. them. Um, but yeah, yeah, so we've got we've got our setup, we've got all our chess pieces. And so Patrick tries unsuccessfully to ask um Kat out because she's clearly not into him. She's not into any guys at all. She hates men specifically. She has a lot of resentment because of how she's been treated, which is what we later find out. Like, right. We later, like we find out like, like in the beginning of the movie, they referenced this guy that, that she kicked in the balls. And I, I thought it was funny in that scene with Miss Perky where they're like, by the way, they managed to reattach his scrotum. (laughs) Right. (laughs) uh yeah but you know and then but then you find out that's a guy that harassed her so i mean he had it coming uh but i do like those first initial failed attempts because we get the record store meeting where they kind of have this little witty back and forth she does the i want you i need you oh baby oh baby eye roll thing but there's chemistry there and they're kind of the sparks are flying the these two aren't afraid of each other and everyone else is afraid of them. And then Kat backs up into Joey's car and then we go oh, yeah. right into Perfect. Larry Miller echoing the oops. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean, I dare you not to fall in love with Heath Ledger. Oh, he's movie. so beautiful. Like I dare you. I feel like such a creep because, you know, when I watched this movie initially, I was young, but now I'm 33 and knowing that he's a 19 year old makes me feel weird. Uh, but he's just, 
he's gorgeous and sweet and he has these these dimples that are really like deep uh and he's so confident and little freckles yeah he's so confident apparently i mean of course you know this is an actor who river phoenix like died too young and so the the way that people remember him is very memorializing but people said that that was his vibe that he had this vibe on set of this really mature person and the way that he would talk to people is similar to the way that Patrick would talk to people, like the way that he guided Cameron. Yeah, was, that was a good. Yeah, scene. but they they uh, people who were on the movie talked about him being that way in real life, too. Right. Which I could definitely yeah, imagine. Um. And so they, Cameron and Bianca have a fun little scene where they go through Kat's bedroom. <laughs> and it's okay because it's when he asks to see her bedroom, she's like, well, that's too personal. A girl's bedroom. So it's cute. They acknowledge. A girl's bedroom right. is a private thing <laughs> as yeah. they're going through Kat's <laughs> bedroom. Uh, yeah, I also like that, like, as they're trying to help Patrick, they go to Patrick's bar where he hangs out and plays pool, which oh, right. is such a, like, cool teenage boy thing to do. Like, it's, uh, it's the bar from Terminator. Uh, it's, it's right? so cool. It's, it's like, if you weren't, if you weren't already in love with Heath Ledger and his smile and his little belligerent sexual tension with Kat when they go up to him and they start going through the list of things that Kat likes and Cameron says, she likes pretty guys. And then they look at him and then he looks at them. And, <laughs> and I like that. He's like, am I not pretty? And then I like, uh, uh, what is it? Michael's delivery. He's very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Michael is a very good hype man. Yes. He could hype up anybody. Um, but using his insider information, Patrick, quote unquote, bumps into Kat at a local bar that's playing one of her favorite bands. And it's like an all chick bar. And so as there's Patrick's walking in, there. he's like the only, there's a few And guys he knows there, the bartender. Ch- right. I did like that touch. Um, and so she's kind he kind of plays hard to get, which intrigues her. And then he's like, Will you go out with me? And she says something, and then he's like, Is that a no? And she says no, and he's like, Is that a yes? And she says no. And so it's very playful, and they are. They're two intimidating people who have reputations, and they're both they're both kind of Venn diagramming into each other's circles. But he came to her um, turf. I also like the touch of when the song stops and he shouts that she looks sexy and then everybody hears him. That's the kind of embarrassing thing that would happen to me at a concert. Yeah. And it, and he's not like, he's not ashamed by it. He's just like, so what? So everyone heard me call you sexy. So what? Um, and so we use this to, to go into the party scene. Um, oh wait can we, we talk we about the reason up? for the yeah, party yeah. because i missed this i knew that the party happened because david crumholtz character michael has a grudge against bogey lowenstein 
Oh, which, right. Which I, I thought that was a hilarious character name. And then also he's like this type of person like uh, I think uh, what is it? Yeah. PCU like David Spade and PCU. He's this future yeah, MBA. Yeah, yeah. Like I love that they lay out this character perfectly of Bogie Lowenstein and Michael hating him. And it's okay to hate Bogie Lowenstein because he's this pathetic, pretentious, um, already he thinks that he is in business school practicing his golf swing guy. So when he tells Cameron, I didn't realize that the reason for this whole grudge is because apparently he tells Cameron, he's like, yesterday I was their god. And then Bogie Lowenstein said I bought my eyes odds at the outlet mall. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? And apparently Izods are fancy pens, I guess. I don't know. But it's it's so I crazy. But this this is the whole reason for him to then take Bogie Lowenstein's soiree and turn it right. into a rager. And the staircase shot is fantastic. Oh, when they play the, the band play Air. Did you ever listen yeah. to Air? No. So the the band or the duo behind the sexy boy track that plays when they throw the flyers down the staircase, it's this French band. Uh, you may recognize them as the composers behind the music for The Virgin Suicides, if you ever saw that movie by Sofia Coppola. Uh, but it, I I love Air. I love that song. I love that album. I love the album after that album. <laughs> uh, so yes, I, I was very into that part as well. But yeah, we get the party. As someone who doesn't know any, has no connection to air or that song. Uh, yeah, just the whole idea of like the revenge party and kicking it off with this grand gesture of like, Back then, the word of mouth aspect mm -hmm. and having a flyer in your hand and just, oh, it's such a sexy shot. So the fact that they chose Sexy Boy for the song, I, I appreciated it this time. I wrote it oh, down. Oh, yeah. That. No, I mean, I highly encourage you to to go and listen to Air's music. I think if you like trip hop, you'll like their stuff. Uh, All right. I'll but yeah, so so Bogey Lowenstein's parties is a thing, and they get a lot of great jokes out of it. Like uh, Joey asks Bianca if she's going to Bogey Lowenbrow's party. Like nobody actually even knows what his real name is. And right. then when Poor they guy. get back to Larry Miller to dad, he goes, "What's a Bogey Lowenstein?" <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then I mean, once we get to the actual party too. The party is, again, the whole party is like a mega button of like every shot has some little visual gag or oh, some joke hilarious. that will reoccur. It's hilarious. The, the whole idea of him pawning off the drunk girl onto the kissing guy. Well, yeah, and that's, then later that's kind of very 16 Candles. My favorite yeah. part, though, is the beginning of the party scene. Here's Bogie Lowenstein getting out. Uh, what is it? Cigars from his Lowenstein right. cigar box. And then the doorbell right. rings and he says, ah, that must be Nigel with the Brie. Ah. <laughs> oh. um, and then the teenagers descend down the hill in droves. 
Uh, yeah. I, yeah. The frat, the frat party, his, his fancy, his fancy boy party turns into a frat boy party. Yeah. And it's just, it's very satisfying to see a character, Hey, to see a character like Bogey Lowenstein be pie faced, I guess. He's, he's like a buddy boy. He's a buddy boy from, uh, uh, the, the apartment. Yes. He's like a good, he's a good sap. He, he's definitely a Baxter type. Uh, and so at the party, Cameron is trying to win the attention of Bianca. However, Bianca is sort of more interested in Joey, but even just spending a little bit She quickly learns what it's like to be with Joey. Right, and Joey gives us a little bit of um, Zoolander. Yeah, he's, Zoolander he's giving us some Zoolander, proto Zoolander. Right? Apparently, he yeah, was inspired he, by Marky Mark. Looks. Okay, <laughs> uh, both of his looks are the same look, uh, and she's really turned off by his by by how into himself he is, and he completely ignores her to move on to all the other girls at the party. Uh, and Cameron is upset because she kind of oh, turns him his down. His puppy face is on full blast. Oh yeah, and he he kind of gets real salty about it. Even though I mean, I I don't know. He's not he's not putting in. She the, doesn't the effort, owe him like, shit. Right, right. So yeah. Uh, but then while we're at the party, Cat gets drunk. And when Kat gets drunk, she gets wild. She starts dancing on the table for everyone to see, which makes sense because Julia Stiles is, was in dancing movies. So she's really good oh, at dancing. And another thing I learned from the oral history, apparently they were going to get Paula Abdul to choreograph the dance scene because she was a much-in-demand choreographer at the time. Uh, and Julia Stiles was like, nah, I got this. Yeah, it, you can tell watching her is like, oh yeah, she's actually dancing to the music. Apparently um, she also chose Hypnotize as the song she would dance to. Okay. So, alright, all right, Julia. Um, uh, and then at the party, Heath decides, even though Heath drinks at bars and all this stuff, at the party, Heath is not drinking at all. Or Patrick, I should I say. really liked that. And Patrick... Yeah, Patrick is there to kind of spend time with her, and he kind of becomes her guardian. And when she bumps her head, he makes he sure that she doesn't her fall, fall asleep. Literally, right? She he catches her, brings her out, makes sure that she doesn't fall asleep. And by doing that, he's asking questions about her, and he's getting to know her. And it's really romantic and cute. And she's cute because she's she so desperately doesn't want to be like everyone else, but in this. In this party, she has turned into everyone else. She's just a fun-loving teenager. She's not like other girls. <laughs> uh, and then she barfs on his shoes. Um, and then here again, here is where we start to get into like, if I really want to pick it apart, I, I don't like it kind of territory, which is she, he drives her home and she goes to kiss him and he tur- he, he turns her down because one, she's drunk. And it's not polite to kiss women when they're drunk and all emotional and crazy, right? But also, I, I mean, she just barfed. 
She just spewed. <laughs> like, of course he doesn't want to kiss her. I mean, I have been in Kat's position before where I've wanted a guy to kiss me, even though I had thrown up not that long before. So I can <laughs> in I can understand the perspective of a woman where it's like, you still want the kiss. You still want the kiss. Right. Like, who knows? Maybe in between she got some mouthwash or something. Yeah. Um, but still it was not the right time for many reasons. And then she gets pissed at being rejected. She gets super pissed, but also it makes sense because she's not so, she maybe was she's not so much pissed at him, but yeah, she's extremely vulnerable in that moment and she feels rejected. She feels turned down. Uh, and so as a grand romantic gesture, uh, I mean, we also get the William Shakespeare thing, but blah, 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 blah. But as the grand romantic gesture, Heath Ledger decides to sing I Love You, Baby to the entire gym class at the big stadium. And he does a big song and dance and he gets chased by the security guards and everyone sees it and everyone's laughing. And I like how everyone applauds at the end, even her. She's like, yeah, I get it. And so he he. He makes a big gesture for her, which means a lot. Oh, and it's and so, so charming. I mean, again, if you weren't right. already head over heels in love with Heath Ledger, then this this has to be the moment where you fell even more deeply in love. It's the it's palpable. His his charminess is palpable. Um and so as a, it, of course, he gets sent to time out, you know, to detention, to study, whatever. With David Lee. So- <laughs> oh, I love, I love the touch in detention when David Le- Leisure, Mr. Chapin, gets the pot off of that one yeah. student. He's like, I'm he confiscating, confiscating this. And then he pauses <laughs> over the bag of Cheetos. I'm confiscating this too. And when I was a kid, yeah. I didn't get what was so funny about this. But now as an adult right. imbiber of THC, very clear to me that Mr. Chapin was going to smoke that weed and eat those Cheetos later. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say the same thing. <laughs> when I first saw this movie, I was like, what? what? I'm but confiscating now I'm like, these. I get it. These <laughs> I get it. do. <laughs> um, and so she comes in and her scene with him is so great because she's trying to talk to him in a way that is not obviously like her trying to distract him. So even though it's obvious to us, the audience, and to everyone else in the room, of course, he's got to play the clueless guy, but she's like, you taught me misdirection. We'll have him looking right and then left. And she's like making him look different directions. And he gets to sneak out. And as the big thing at the end, in order to get the teacher's attention big time for him to finally make the, the final move of sneaking out, she flashes him. And she's technically 18 in the movie. So I mean, I don't think she fine. really flashed him. Like I'm very, you think she's got like a bra. I am almost that? certain that she had a bra on, but from the back, I don't know. She was pretty feminist. <laughs> I mean, it does look a lot of the time like Julia styles does not wear a bra in this movie, but I don't know. I assume that she didn't actually flash David Leisure. Right. And so they sneak out. They have a very romantic Such date. Such a cute which date. Is, 
paddle boats and paintball, baby. I love the paintball scene because I think it's sort of underrated in romantic comedies to depict playfulness. Like, I think there's just something really cute and fun about the shorthand of two people who like each other chasing each other. Yes, it's very kid-like, but it's just, I don't know, it's so pure and sweet. Yeah. And, um, And so after we get this nice little date scene... So here's here's where Bianca starts to go from Team Joey to Team Cameron. Well, yeah, she kissed. Right? So she kissed Cameron after the party, and that got Cameron right. back in the game. But then she was angry because Cameron, since the kiss, has not asked her out. And the way that they portrayed that is really funny because in the beginning of the movie, she was looking for a French tutor, but now she's so good at French. She can complain to Cameron about not asking her out. And he's the one who has to look in his French book for the answers. Oh, right. And his book still has the giant drill hole in Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) He's still using the drill hole book. Um, Yeah, because, yeah, when you're in high school, you got to sign out. the. You put your initials at the front of the books and then that's your one book. So if it's got a hole in it, that's your that's your book for the Mm -hmm. year. Yeah. and so, yeah, she speaks French to him. He's totally clueless. But essentially, she can't go to prom unless Kat goes to prom. And this is where we kind of have that more heart-to-heart scene, which is uh, Bianca is wearing... No, we they talk about the pearls. Yeah, earlier, they, they have but... the conversation about the pearls. Uh, but I think it's so... Uh, Kat has already fought with Patrick about going to prom because she asks him, well, what's in it for you? And he kind of stumbles over his words and he's like, well, the pleasure of your right. company, but he's acting shady and she's yeah. pretty. Fr- he, he has been paid $300 at this point, even though he didn't want to take the also, money. Also, you have to imagine that some of that, mo- some of that money was already used in order to get the marching band together so all of the move it's interesting that all the money that we see patrick spend in the movie is money he spends on things for cat so when he shells out the cash to the marching band or when we find out that he called in a favor later at the prom or the and the denouement of the movie he is never seen buying anything for himself. So we know that his heart is pure through the entire thing. Right. And yes, that'll come back later for sure. And, um, but yeah, Bianca's Bianca's mad because she won't go to the prom and, and it's like, why won't you go? And then that's when Kat has the heart to heart where she confesses about Joey. Right. When their mom left, she was dating Joey. And so because that because she was kind of more Bianca ish, she was more girly girl. And so uh, she ended up because of peer pressure and because because she was emotional about her mom leaving and stuff. She she gave into peer pressure. She had sex with Joey, but she didn't like it. And so afterwards, she was like, no, I don't want to keep having sex. It di- I didn't like it. It didn't make me feel comfortable. But Joey wants sex. That's all he wants. So he dumps her. 
And now she's like, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do me. Right. I'm not going to try to do anything. Not going to live up to anyone's expectations. And I also liked her explanation for why she didn't tell this to Bianca from the beginning, because there's an argument to be made that, you know, it's, it's your responsibility to warn other women to stay away from this guy so no one has to be hurt from from him. But no, she wanted Bianca to make up her own mind about Joey. And she trusted that Bianca was going to be able to see through Joey's bullshit eventually. Which right. takes a lot of and guts. And she does. A lot of guts. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're both, they're both smart. They're both smart people. Um, but this makes Bianca so, mad. She's mad that she didn't tell him, didn't let her make her own decisions. And and so right. now, now Julia Stiles' cat decides she is going to go to the prom for Bianca. Yeah. And then we get another great scene of Larry Miller and him having her, him having Bianca put on the, the, the baby oh, thing or was, that was that, before was the that party early? and then okay, we yeah, got yeah. the line delivery from patrick who knocked up your sister yeah who knocked I, up your i also like that, that so after the kiss uh what is it cameron goes back to patrick and patrick's like what happened i thought that you weren't weren't in it anymore and then cameron's like well then she kissed me and then patrick gives him right. this, this kind of older knowing stare like where uh, and then Cameron, an innocent, says, in the car. <laughs> Aww. Yeah. Just, I, I love that. Like, I, I do think that this movie does a good job of showing how when you're a teenager, there really is a stark divide between the experienced and inexperienced. So there yeah. are people your age who feel so much older based on what they've had to experience versus what you've gotten to experience. Um, so yeah, like Michael and Kat and Patrick all feel like older, more experienced people. Whereas Bianca and Cameron are very young and innocent. Yeah. And so, uh, Kat goes to prom with Patrick. Oh, and she's wearing mom's Bianca. pearls, which I thought was a really cute touch. Aww. Um, and Bianca decides to go with Cameron. And then, so when Joey shows up later, Larry David just closes the door right in, or Larry Miller yeah. closes the door right also in. Also a Larry. I, I loved that, right. that scene too. <laughs> um, and... I think it's very surprising because at this moment we've got like 20 minutes left in the movie and they really blast through oh, prom. So quick. Prom is essentially the fights, which is it's revealed. Oh, well, we that get the Patrick, gesture. We get letters to Cleo showing up and that's, her, that's Kat's right. favorite band. And the lead singer personally goes out to her in the audience. And it, it's a very cute, romantic high school moment of course i would love it if my boyfriend brought my favorite band to prom oh um, but yeah we get and- we get the uh we get the big conflict the big fight and reveal joey paid patrick joey paid patrick so she's upset with him he's 
upset with himself because he really likes her. Of course, he's, he broke the number one rule of not falling in love, which is he fell in love. And then Bianca comes out. Uh, Joey punches Cameron because Joey's mad at Cameron for stealing the girl because he paid all this money for Patrick to take out Cat so that he could sleep with uh, Bianca. But now she's out with him, so he punches uh, Joey punches Cameron, and then Bianca comes up and gives him two good punches and one good knee. The old knee uh, to the groin. What's their last name? Uh, uh, Stratford, the old Stratford knee to the groin. Yeah, uh, she's here's here's for making my date bleed. Here's for making my sister cry, and here's for and this one's for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's great. And then the prom ends, and that's it. And so again, like. If I, I'm ready for this movie to wrap up at this point. And what this movie does is, wrap is wraps everything up beautifully. There's no Notting Hill extra 20 minutes of back and no, forth. No, we don't need it. Oh, because we get no. the best climactic moment ever, which is the reading of the 10 Things I Hate About You poem. Yeah, and I like that she gets kicked out of class for saying she likes the assignment. That was funny. <laughs> Get out. Um, <laughs> I... But yeah, she really likes him. And I love that she she's not saying, I forgive you, but she's saying, like, it sucks that I actually feel so hurt by you because that means I really like you and I still like you and it just sucks. Like, that's all it is, is it just sucks. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, she doesn't have and, to give away anything of herself. She doesn't have to be tamed. You're right. She doesn't have to say right. that she forgives him, and she doesn't. And what makes the whole forgiveness scene, because later it's, it's like, hey, you're going off to, uh, you're going off sailing with Cameron. Have fun. Da, da, da. I'm glad you guys are together. I'm glad that you had fun. She really appreciates that her sister is is doing well even though she had a very shitty thing happen to her which was having someone paid to go out with her but the the it, it, it's a movie and we want a happy ending we want an hea thank uh, you for saying and, it <laughs> and the fact that like he gives her the the fender is is great because she wants to start a band cuz she loves punk rock feminist right, music girl. and and so she she really wants that specific guitar and he gets it to her. And then she's like, you know, you can't just get me a guitar every time. He's like, I know there's drums and bass and maybe even a tambourine one day. So like, <laughs> it's cute. They love each other. It doesn't matter how they got together. What matters is the future. Um, and they they kiss. And that's the end of the movie. And we get. And then we get the cool yeah letters letter, letters to band. Cleo playing yeah. I want you to want me on the roof yeah it's perfect great great stuff I have one question for you who would you kill from this movie oh man it's hard but I guess I would have to kill I didn't think about it so Gabrielle Union because her character turns on a dime she goes from just side character oh, she has one no or two line loyalty. best friend right and and just without hesitation she's like nope i want to be the main character of the movie and obviously the main character of the movie would be the one who is dating joey because he's the most popular boy 
So she's she's she wants the social status, whereas Bianca wants something a little bit more. Um, yeah, Gabrielle Union. But also, it was kind of cool to see Gab- Gabrielle Union. Like, well, she's a veteran. She's a veteran teen movie actor. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, her her character unfortunately didn't get to do much except being the betraying best friend. Yeah, I would take out. And her name is Chastity Church. Chastity Church. <laughs> that's not fair. Oh, what a name! Uh, that's no Bogey Lowenstein. Uh, <laughs> I I would take out Joey because I just think it's really gross for yeah. a guy to be super into virgins. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Uh, yeah, it's weird. Like, it, it's is not gross. like it's gross. I know we're not supposed to kink shame people, but if your kink is virgins, then I'm shaming you. Yeah, and it's 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 actually his character is grosser than Larry than the picture Larry Miller paints for us when he says kissing. You think that's why I'm covered up to my elbows <laughs> and my elbows in placenta? I love that. You know line. what she I said to me? I should have listened to my father. <laughs> well, that's she didn't say that's that. That's what she would have said if she wasn't so doped up. <laughs> yeah. So no, good. that it's great. Um, well, since you're doing a big fusion, let me go ahead yes. and blast out this horror. I didn't put as much thought into it as I did my uh, my Halloween romance, but I still think that there's a concept here. So bef- before yeah. I get into this, I just want to say, uh, so there's this subgenre of comics, um, you know, like Asian comics, like shoujo called Otome Isekai. So an isekai is an anime or manga where somebody dies and then they're reincarnated in another world. So there's okay. a subgenre within this subgenre where you specifically die and are reincarnated in an otome game, which is basically a dating simulator for girls. Uh, so a lot of times it's, I was reincarnated as the villain of my favorite game and now I have to make a different choice so my character doesn't die. Like it's things like that. And there's actually hundreds of comics out there like this and it's really the Otome isekais that have inspired my plot today. Uh okay. but this is going to be called 10 things I hate about Joey. Uh, Let's hear him. 1999, a 16-year-old nerdy boy named Joe asks a popular girl in his class to go on a date with him to see 10 Things I Hate About You. She (laughs) pretends to accept, but then stands him up, so Joe has to go see the movie by himself. And, you know, we'll see that he liked the movie. He really enjoyed watching it. Even though he originally went to the movie with the purpose of going on a date with this girl, he had a good time. But then as Joe's yeah. leaving the theater, he gets hit by a car and dies. Uh, Good. But then Joe wakes up as Joey Donner and realizes that he has been reincarnated as the bully character in the universe of the movie that he just watched. 
And he knows what happens to Joey at the end of 10 Things I Hate About You. And he's terrified of ending up just like them. So he'd like to keep his scrotum attached. He'd like to keep his scrotum attached. (laughs) He doesn't want to get hit in the face. He 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 in his real life, in his former life, was a nerdy guy who got bullied. So why would he want to continue that there? But he's also in the bottle of body of a male model now. But he still has the attitude of somebody who's who's a nerdy loser. Uh, So he realizes that he's become conscious of himself as Joey before the events of the movie. So he has the chance to change his fate. And so he turns Joey Donner basically into a nice guy. But that truly rare form of nice guy who is also handsome and cool. Uh, And instead of him becoming a bully, he befriends Michael and Joey does several things to Michael throughout 10 things I hate about you that are kind of like gross to watch. Like when he draws the dick on his face or when he talks about acknowledging him, it's just, it's all very weaselly and sad. Uh, So in this version, he's like, okay, well now I have to befriend Michael. So then, then the events of this movie won't happen. And I have to stay away from the Stratford girls because they're going to be nothing but trouble for me. And so maybe in a, in a funny way, his desire to stay away from everybody and to be so nice makes him extremely popular, like even more popular than Joey was as a bully but he still tries so hard. He's like, no, you can't make me popular. You can't pay attention to me. Stop it. But then they're like, no, we love you. He gets, he gets like almost like a Sakamoto thing going. Right. You could have a great scene where Joey's in class trying to come up with ways to not be popular, but the teacher in class who we never see is talking about fate. <laughs> can't stop. The, the, you, you just you just use the same soundbite as Halloween with the teacher saying fate like 15 times in one minute. Sure. Uh, so, you know, Joey thinks that he's doing things well, but what he doesn't know is that Michael secretly resents Joey. How could someone so good looking, so kind and generous exist? Uh, And he basically takes all of this resentment and desire for revenge, which in the movie version, he would have targeted towards Bogey Lowenstein, which was, you know, a fairly harmless target. It all becomes targeted towards Joey. And things really start to come to a head when Cameron and Patrick transfer to the school because Joey's like, oh, my God, it's go time. They're here. The plots of this movie are going to be set in motion. Unless I do something, I'm going to get kicked in the balls really hard and be separated from my scrotum. So (laughs) he becomes friends with them. But Michael is super jealous So then Michael decides that he's going to kill Cameron by tricking him onto his sailboat to meet Bianca. And then he does a Tom Ripley and kills him on the sailboat. Uh, And then, of course, I was thinking he should kill Patrick with the table saw in the wood shop. Yeah. So then Joey has no idea 
why things are so much worse in this version because he was doing all of this to avoid being punished for being a bully, but then he somehow engineered something that was far worse. How, how can right. he do this? How, how can he resolve this when it's all his fault? So in a moment of desperation, he tells everything to Mandela, the cat's best friend, who actually takes it all in stride and says, I've always known I was a side character. It's like, <laughs> do you think I even leave this school did I have a home to go back to? <laughs> right. Nothing was written for me. <laughs> I just stay here. <laughs> uh, so they're able to figure out that the killer is Michael. And then they lay, they lay a trap for him in the school gym. And we can get a very creepy recitation of the 10 things poem. But to Joey, mm-hmm. it's like 10 things I hate about Joey. I hate your hair. I hate your <laughs> eyelashes. I hate your muscles. I hate the way you comb your hair. I hate the way you sit in a chair. (laughs) Um, And then somehow Michael is able to get a hold of Mandela and he threatens to kill her if Joey doesn't come out. And so Joey comes out and he's like, you were supposed to be the fun guy, the narrator, the comic relief. Like he's describing who Michael is in 10 things And then, of course, Michael says, and you ruined that for me. And then he lunges in uh, with the knife. Uh, Mandela hits Michael in the head with a soccer ball. And then she and Joey run away. And then they trip over the body of Mr. Chapin. Maybe he stabbed him in the butt, like an even worse version of when Bianca shot him. Uh, And then uh, maybe Michael sings Cruel to be Kind while he stalks them (laughs) through the school. Uh, and we we end up in the swimming pool area. There's a cover over the pool. Joey jumps out, fights Michael, and then Michael falls into the pool and is tangled and drowned inside the pool cover. And I mean, that's the end. Maybe maybe Joey and and then he disappears. And then mid credit scene fade into point of view of of the Myers house as Michael now a now a serial killer <laughs> is <laughs> yeah, I didn't he, realize he I was like in, I, how convenient I'll make the other Michael character the killer <laughs> I like that yeah 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 all right let's hear let's hear the mega mix I'm I'm ready All right. It was low-hanging fruit, but I had to take it. The title for the movie is 10 Things I Hate About Halloween. Ah, I knew it. Ah. And so, quickly, some of the things that I I flirted with, one of the things was, like, a VR movie. Because it'd be cool if, like, you could be at a party and walk around the party and just watch whatever aspects of the party you wanted to. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But I kind of did that with the Hannah and her sisters and Thanksgiving thing, which was I kind of created a a choose-your-own-adventure story. And so it felt too similar for me. And then there's a couple other ideas um, that I I had, but I just... I, I. it took me a while to get here, but I we're going to start off with Lori as the new girl, right, at the school. So we have Lori Strode as played by 
Jamie Lee so Curtis. So she's the transfer. In 1978. She's the transfer student. Right. Right. And so she's the, the transfer student, and we get it all from her perspective as Bianca takes her through the party. And so Lori is a little bit more shy and intimidated by everything because she's Lori Strode. And Bianca is more bubbly and upbeat and like breaking down the different cliques and stuff, but it's all first party and everyone's wearing a mask. The whole movie. This is like judge. This is dread. Carl Urban's dread. We've got a mask on for the whole movie. Pretty oh, much. creepy. And, and so what we do is we just meet the players. We meet Annie gets to have a conversation with Kat. You know what I mean? And maybe Ben Tramer gets to have a conversation with Cameron. And they're two nice guys having a conversation. Heath Ledger, it gets to talk with PJ Souls. And they and she breaks up with her boyfriend to go with him. Whatever it is. Uh, we it, we're Essentially, we're just taking the characters as defined by their existing movies and putting them in the same movie. Okay. However, while all this is going on... In the backstory, we get the the Michael Myers is essentially Michael Myers. He's a guy who wears the Michael Myers mask and he goes around killing people. Um, and to sort of to sort of draw on some of the sequels that that Halloween had, like he's going to have a cult behind him, and you okay. know he's just he all he knows is he has to go to the party, and they're trying what they're trying to do is is kill everyone except for two people so that those two people can fall in love and have a baby. And that baby will be like the omen antichrist Rosemary's baby. Right. So part of the bad guy's plan still involves there being a romantic aspect, but Michael Myers kills Laurie Strode about, 15 minutes into the movie. So the first 15 no. minutes of the movie is all one you, shot. You screamed her? You Wes, you Wes Craven her. her? How dare you? But just like your movie has body switching, consciousness switching, we're going to essentially combine that aspect with Gary Marshall's holiday formula. Okay. So okay. Sh- she goes into a different body. One of the people, one of the characters from the movie, she goes into their body. We're going to set it up so that no matter how she talks, the people at the party are only going to hear what they want to hear. And we can set that up with like a cell phone video where she's talking to, she's in Ben Tramer's body talking to Cameron. And, you know, she's like, hey, I was just killed. And now I woke up and I'm wearing this mask. And, and I don't, and, and I, and I think, I don't know what's going on and blah, blah, blah. And, but then when they play the video back, it's like, Hey man, this is a great party. I'm having such a great time. Rah, rah, rah. So kind of like a hatchet for the honeymoon where like, okay, we'll just hear the wife, you know, the dead wife. So every time we jump into a different point of view, we have her internal monologue from this other character's perspective as other characters are treating them like that character. But we also have a little bit of like, where's Michael? Because it's a party scene and it's going to, the party's going to be at a giant mansion. So we can have like mm. clue, you know, this person dies in the library by the candlestick. And, you know, we can have different set pieces like a billiard room, a, a garage, a, a whatever. 
And so while all of that is happening, we have where's Michael. So like if you're a fan of the horror movie aspect, you can be like, oh, shit, I see Michael in the background and he's doing something that will come back later. But also we're going to have did you ever see Steve Jobs, the uh, the Danny Boyle version? No. Was that the one? uh, Was that the one with Michael Fassbender? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things Danny Boyle does in that movie is in order, because it takes place during three different time periods of Steve Jobs' life, in order to set the scene, he kind of like projects these scenes on the wall that's like, it's not acknowledged by the characters, but it's just a cool way to kind of set the scene. So what I'm thinking is every time Laurie Strode as another character goes to interact with other characters... We can kind of have like a home movies version of like those characters as kids interacting. And essentially what I'm going to do is set up the fact that all of these characters used to be friends, but because of high school, they all join different cliques. And so now they're not friends anymore. But as we're watching them not be friends we're seeing the home movie version of when they used to be friends. So we have romance and we have tension and we also have Michael Myers going around killing Laurie Strode over and over and over. Oh, as she pops into different avatars. Right. And so one of the things is the cult needs him to kill her for their plan to work, but she keeps resurrecting so one scene they can have it where like as Annie or whoever, as PJ Souls, um, she she gets kidnapped and brought to the cult. That way we can have some exposition stuff and they can like, now we're going to perform a spell and then you'll be dead for sure. And then she wakes up and are, she, are she, any she faculty at the school involved in the cult like Mr. Chapin, Miss uh, Perky. Yeah, just like the faculty. <laughs> exactly Um, yeah that would be great if the cult was all teachers and stuff i like that note and so then also while she's doing this we can set up if we want to this is a little bit of a late addition but i like it instead of having a dr loomis character because how can there be a dr loomis character we can have a shaman loomis character (laughs) and so this character appears to her through visions and guides her um i love that as they go on uh and so while all of this is going on, we get all cool sorts of kills and the, the the story just keeps amping up. We just keep throwing things at you because 10 Things I Hate About You just throws so much at you. And then what I really like is at the end of the movie, she gets taken over by, um, I guess we'll, we'll save Ben Tramer for the last, right? So they have a very great meet cute at the beginning. And then the whole movie, she has to protect Ben Tramer because he's also one of the people that needs to die so the other couple can live. So she's trying really hard to protect protect Ben Tramer because if she can't be alive, she wants him to because she she just really likes him. She just met him and she doesn't want his life to be ended. But at the end of the movie, the very last person she takes over is Ben Tramer. So now it's like life or death. And what ends up happening is... Um, uh, uh, Michael Myers actually, uh, Ben Tramer actually is able to get his mask off and sort of get him in a killing position. And Michael Myers, as he's like, I'm so tired of killing. He actually speaks and says, I'm so tired of killing. 
these are the 10 things I hate about Halloween. <laughs> and the 10 we things are like a Halloween, rhyming couplet. No, he's over it. He doesn't want to kill anymore. He's over it. The cult is making him do it. They're mind controlling him. And the very last thing he says is, I hate that I can't kill you. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. And then he dies. That's what he says with his dying breath. But now we have a big problem, right? We have Ben Tramer is alive and uh, Laurie Strode is dead, but in his body. So as Michael Myers fades away and dies with his last breath, I can't kill you, not even at all. We, for the first time, uh, we go back to Laurie Strode's point of view from her decapitated head. That's how he kills her at the beginning. He decapitates her. So then, as um, at, but right as the credits start to roll, we see Ben Tramer put the head inside of a box. You can have that little thing of like, you know, the box, the handle. So like we can see out the handle as he drives the box and the credits are rolling and we see the box traveling and the box is traveling and it's traveling. The credits are rolling. Some cool song is playing. And then at the end of the movie, the final, um, what do you call it? The end thing at the movie, they, we have, Two characters approach uh, um, Ben Tramer and say, you know, uh, or the, Ben Tramer goes up to someone and says, hey, Cousin Jeffrey, uh, I need your help with something. And when Cousin Jeffrey turns around, Cousin Jeffrey is Jeffrey from Frankenhooker. And so we have oh, the, the, yeah. the brought to back life version of Frankenhooker, Jeffrey, with the lady from Frankenhooker, the Frankenhooker lady, she's helping him. They're both people who are now able to successfully bring people back to life. And so using Laurie Strode's head, they attach all the other kids' various body parts together and bring them back to life. So now, even though all the kids used to be friends and now they're all dead because Michael Myers killed them, in a, in a happy way, they're all brought back together in death and they're all a sort of Frankenhooker mismatch oh, wow. of body parts. Now and we're that's all the end freaks. Of the <laughs> right. Ben Tramer can be kissing Frankenhooker version of Laurie Strode as Jeffrey and Frankenhooker make out. And everyone can be making out. And that's 10 things I hate about Halloween. That's a wild ending. That's a neon Evangelion ending as far as I'm concerned. You just, you just, you went left and then you went left again and then you turned right and then I have no idea where you went after that. It, <laughs> it was a very confusing journey, but I am here for all of it. And then we it. went to infinity and beyond. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I saw I saw a <laughs> meme that said that the new uh, Buzz Light, Lightyear movie makes it look like he turned his body cam off. <laughs> and it's just so terrible. <laughs> It feels like an accurate description. Uh, wow. I I am very... I like that you brought them all to one big party, can't hardly wait style. Yeah. I think that that, I mean, that whole, worked yeah. perfectly. It would be great to go to a party with these characters. I, I am definitely into that. Well, 
Before we continue the party by getting into our love bites, I would just like to remind you for the hundredth time that you should follow us on social media at Necromancer Pod and like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, all right. Let's get into love bites. What would you like to recommend this week, Brett? Um, well, two things. One thing real quick, playoff hockey. I think playoff hockey is Ooh, great. What, what teams are um, we rooting for? Well, oh my God, don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. Sonia's two favorite teams, the Florida Panthers and Washington Capitals, are playing each other in the first round of the playoffs. It's too much. Ooh. It's too much. Um, but I think playoff hockey. If if you are are casually familiar with hockey and thinking, you know, on some random Thursday night, maybe I I'm I'm looking for something new to watch. Uh, playoff hockey is a completely different sport from regulation season hockey. I can imagine. So it is intense. It's intense. Watch the pre-show, get the narratives, get into the oh, game. Oh, you know I love a but story. Also, you know I love a rivalry. Uh, the narratives. Just think of the narratives. <laughs> um, and But the other thing is, I can't remember if I recommended this or not. Um, I probably would have during Galaxy Quest episode. But the movie, everyone always asks, what's your favorite movie, right? Miracle. But, <laughs> what what is the movie you've seen the most? And I always tell people that the movie I've seen the most is easily, hands down, I've probably, no joke, seen it over a hundred times. So for our hundredth episode, I have to recommend for my love bite, The Fifth Element is, oh, it's like, I, I saw it as a teenager and it just, it blew my mind. It was everything I wanted a movie to be, and it was making it was like making light of action movies, but it also was a great action movie. And it just the like the fifth element is perfect and romantic. The fifth element is love. There is a romantic through line, and yeah, no notes. I detect no lies. Uh, yeah, no, I, I heartily agree. The Fifth Element's a great movie, great soundtrack, great casting. You can't go wrong. Cannot go wrong. So how about you? What's your love bite? So I was thinking Sound of Music style. What are my favorite things? We've talked about one of them, 10 Things I Hate About You, but that's an old favorite. It's important to venture out in the world and find new things to make your favorite. And I would say my new favorite thing right now is my air fryer. I highly, highly yeah. recommend to people that you consider getting an air fryer. They are very easy to use and they make the things that you would normally put into an oven or if you have the time and skill, deep fry. And then mm. it's so much easier. So I really like uh, they're uh, at the Asian grocery store. They sell these little frozen taiyaki, which are pastries that are shaped like fish. And they usually have red bean in them. It's a, it's a little Japanese treat that me, a Weibo, heartily enjoy. <laughs> 
and they taste amazing out of the air fryer. Or more recently, I put some uh, chicken wings in there. Also tried mozzarella Ooh. balls. There's I, I so far there's nothing that I have put in the air fryer yet that wasn't much easier to make than putting it in the oven or in a skillet. And then two, more delicious. So yes, I would highly recommend an air fryer. It will become your new favorite thing. And then you can eat air fried foods while you watch 10 Things I Hate About You. Very nice. I, I'm going to have to try that. I, I Next time I come over, we should do the uh Oh, yeah. I'll, fish, I'll air fry. Fishies. I'll air fry you and Sonia some fishies any day. Uh, because, again, the preparation couldn't be more simple. Uh, all right. Well, that. Oh, wait. You're putting your finger up. You got something to say. Yep. Tell us. Say. You can say, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Brackett. I didn't see you there. Okay, oh, go ahead. Mr. Brackett, I'm sorry I didn't see you there. Oh, it's okay. It's the 100th episode. Everyone's entitled to one good... Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.